Trevor McDonald, it is an absolute pleasure to sit down with you right by the Fraser River. We have lots to talk about because you've set an extremely amazing example for our community. And I'd just like to start off with a little bit about your background, but I'd also like to just thank you for taking the time to come out here and, and share your story. Well, thank you, Aaron, for uh, doing this. It's I, could, I don't think you could pick a more picturesque place to do an interview. I've, I've got to say this is a first for me. Uh, yeah, this is amazing. We are blessed to be on these lands, aren't we? Yeah. Right? Yes, it's we very can't forget whose lands we're on right now. We have to uh, pay great respect to that. Uh, I got to say, this is the the best way to end a day. So thanks for doing this. I'm really grateful that you were able to take the time because I think it's important that we're able to share these these stories because it's too often that they're gone and they're never told and they're never kept. And so I'm grateful to be able to share your story on, on the platform and make sure that it's told for other people to hear and learn from. Well, thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? Well, I mean, uh, I was born in Toronto, Ontario. I moved, uh, you know, early life for me was a bit of a blur. Uh, the youngest of 10. Um, moved to Chilliwack. Really, that's where life began for me. Really, I say that I was, I started here because this is really where I, I got here when I was uh, nine years old, going on 10. Um, just loved it from the very beginning. Chilliwack was a magical spot. Uh, my mom was a, a welfare mom. Um, but uh, just an incredibly resilient lady. And back in the days when I was young, if you were on welfare, you could still purchase houses, yeah. which you can't now. But back in the day, you could. And so my mom always made a point of, of buying real estate. And uh, we moved from Ontario. She sold her place there, moved here in 1977. We bought a small place uh, on Lewis Avenue where uh, this story will return again and again. But uh, about eight blocks from where I, I currently reside right now, uh, some 40 years later, but uh, yeah, it's been a long and interesting journey, but uh, so happy to be here and starting from very humble beginnings and ending up here at 53-year-old uh, guy with very humble uh, middle-aged stuff going on. So Yeah, I definitely know what that's like. I have a lot of respect for my mom because I got to see this person face adversity again and again and again, but get up because of me and that just gains more and more respect from me the more I understand the sacrifices that she made and the tough decisions she had to make because there were times where she would move food onto my plate from her own because there wasn't enough food for, for more for me. And so um, I'm wondering how you feel about that and what your memories are with your parents. How many kids in your family? Just me. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so we come from two uh, very different situations. You being, you being a, an only child and, and me actually... Although I was the youngest of 10, our family was in two, uh, kind of t version one, version two. So uh, my mom had me when she was 41 years old. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so the first generations of our family were born in the early, mid-40s mid to 48. And then uh, down to myself and my two older sisters who were uh, three and, and five years apart from me. So we had a weird um, kind of an upbringing because my family, the generation one left Ontario moved to BC way before we ever did right. so I lost touch with my brothers to the point where I my mother actually got me a big brother sponsor to kind of make up for my lack of of having a brother which is kind of strange but uh I mean you know I you know I'll tell you what um talking about my childhood and and my mom being very resilient and and I, I think that life is just I really think life is is um, 
you deal with it as best you can. Um, those who can pivot, pivot. And my story is basically, and I was thinking about this on my way here, is my story is a pivot. Uh, everything I've done in my whole life has been a pivot, um, adapting and changing um, to the point where I became very good at it, right? Yeah. And I think that is part of growing up. The way we grow up is you become a, you get that extra survival nodule and you, right? Um, some, unfortunately, are not as uh, maybe mentally strong and um, they don't have the capability or the, or the, or the, uh, the tools to, to adapt and to move forward in a positive way, right? I was blessed to um, kind of see the positive um, in, in one of my older brothers. I mean, all my family, obviously, I take great things from, from all of them. But from one of my older brothers in particular, who I, I lost years ago to a heart attack, but he was a real inspiration for me. And, um, you know, you, you cling on to the light, right? Yeah. And that means your neighbor across the street who was really good to you. I think of that right away. I think of school teachers who saw where I was lacking in love and, and support and filled that void. I was always blessed to um, see a shining light in someone and they in turn saw that in me, I guess, and offered a hand out, you know. I feel the exact same way. I remember, I don't know if you know Ron Laser, yeah, who's now yeah. in uh, Great guy. real estate, but he would um, give me birthday cake and birthday food. But like at some point he would just give us free hot chocolate because there wasn't that extra money to be able to just go out all the time and enjoy decades. But he really created a space for me and that became the only coffee shop that I ever really knew growing up because he was willing to, to support us and to uh, kind of give us those opportunities to feel a little bit more comfortable when in other places, it's just assumed that you have the extra money to pay for those things. But we've used that little back area that he had for meetings and stuff for birthdays, yep. for events. And he would just do that all of because he watched me kind of grow up there. And uh, same with Creekside. My mom had a job there um, all along Wellington. I, my mom's worked on in almost every business in that whole road. And it was more people just trying to help us out and give us a leg up more than I think they needed my mom to be there and that's that's community to me is being able to look back on all of those stores home hardware that was there when we were growing up um the royal hotel those are all just places where they'd help us out and give us opportunities my mom worked there too and so i definitely understand what you're saying well i don't know if i if i if i know of your mom but i can tell you just by the story you're saying right now that obviously everybody you mentioned saw the same light that maybe some saw in myself. They saw in your mom, they saw somebody who uh, was not a quitter, who was resilient and who really just needed that, that, that handout uh, of support. And, you know, to me, it takes a really beautiful human being to be good enough in your own shoes to, uh, you know, to really take the extra time like guys like Ron and, and the people you speak of to notice that, there's somebody who needs to feel like they belong. They need to feel empowered and empowerment is everything. Empowerment is pride. Right. And, and I go back to my mom being able to own a house on welfare. Ownership is pride, isn't it? You yeah. know, like, um, never, there's, there's so much pride. And, and when good people recognize that in a person that maybe just needs a shot in the arm, I, I, have so much respect for it, and I love that you meant to mention decades because uh, they're turning it into a daycare right now, where hopefully that building is going to, you know, awesome. help some people along and change some lives as well. So yeah, 
the I, legacy will kind of continue in the decades building. I absolutely agree. And I think when people do those acts of kindness, they're not looking, they're not doing it for the advertising. They're not um, like, I don't think Ron ever expected me to create a podcast and start talking about uh, his impact. I've mentioned it a few times on here, but I think that that's where the value comes in is that there are these unsung heroes of our community who are never looking for the spotlight to get the recognition of what they're doing in the community. They just view it as their responsibility as, as a member of the community. And I think that you carry a lot of that with you because I see you helping out other musicians and I hear you um, working with others to try and build their opportunities and to open doors for others. And so can we talk a little bit about that? How did you end up in the entertainment industry? What called you in that direction? Here's the story of a pivot. So I, uh, when I left high school, I had no ambitions, no expectations of going to college or university. It wasn't in our family's DNA. I have a beautiful sister who, who did go to university and I had a brother who was, who, you know, was scholarly, but, um, they were the exception to the rule. Um, my friends in high school, all of them had university plans since grade seven, almost, you know, they, they were already in a five-year plan in grade seven where I was just deciding, you know, what hockey gear I was going to put on to go play ball hockey. Right. So come grade 12, everybody had their plans. They all went to their universities and colleges and got their scholarships. And I was literally floundering and, um, I hung around and, and, made some community connections, ended up, um, I worked at a Seven Eleven as a graveyard shift. Um, I worked in a produce stand. Uh, I love that actually. I worked in a produce stand, uh, right where, right where, uh, I was going to say where Canadian tires where Merton is now on Yale road. Um, and I loved it. And you know, my whole personality is that I don't mind, uh, the first three weeks being an employee, but I'm always wondering how quickly I can get into management, right? It's a control freak. And I think that that speaks to uh, having a bit of a, not a solid foundation. As a kid, you, you always have to be in control, right? And it's stuff you learn. I learned as a 53-year-old guy that, you know, my need for control comes from not having it a long time ago. Yeah. And um, to the point of anxiety, really, for me. But uh, so back to the pivot. So um, ended up, uh, going from Seven Eleven to a, a computer store. Uh, so at one point I worked nine to five at, um, an office supply place, five 30 to eight 30 at same day TV, selling TVs and renting videos. Big shout out to same day TV on young street, uh, old school VHS machines. Uh, and then going from there over to a nightclub started out nightclubbing. Uh, went from DJing at the nightclubs to managing the nightclub after a while. Nightclubs closed down. Uh, I was without a job. At uh, I just bought my first house at 23, and my mom had just passed away. It was a pretty tough time. And um, so I was without a job and a brand new house with a mortgage. And, no, and all those doors, people said, oh, you're really, you know, you're an enthusiastic guy. Boy, I tell you, you ever want to leave this trade? Let me know. I've got a job waiting for you. And then I got, uh, our, our nightclub got sold, no job and no phone calls and no return phone calls. Right. So in order not to lose my mind, I would put on a suit every day. And back then with UI, you could, uh, make a hundred dollars a week or something or a hundred dollars. I don't know, remember what it was, but so I walked into a piano store on young street. I was a gentleman there. An old gentleman had an old used piano store and I didn't play piano, but I walked in and I said, you look like you could use some help. I'm willing to come and work. 
I think it was $100 a month, actually. Either way, just to keep my sanity and make me get up in the morning and put a suit on, I went out and I did this job. And um, over time, I got picked up in a computer store. Didn't know anything about computers. Pivoted over there, sales to sales, right? Found out about music through computers, writing com computer music, MIDI files. Realized that I could go and play at a pub in town and make the same amount of money as a five-piece band as a one-piece band. Wow. If I just wrote the, the, the drum part and the bass part and the piano part. So I could go in and make the same amount of money. So I did it. I started writing tracks. I would write them every night in my basement. Spent hours and hours writing uh, what they call MIDI tracks, which is computer music. Um, and you play along with a guitar and sing to the, to the backup band. Right. And I ended up making that a full-time job. Started one night a week. Ended up doing it 300 shows a year uh, for 25 years. Hold on, 300 that. shows? Yeah, up to 300 So a almost year. getting close to one every day. A lot of times three a day. Wow. Right, so... Uh, but I loved every minute of it, yeah. and um, I was good at it. What was, was your favorite part about it? Well, you know, for me, it was it's always the learn, right? It's the learning. It's the, I don't think I can do this. I'm going to try to do this. So it was the computer programming at first, right? I never even knew what a computer was. I ended up building them with a great guy named Ron Armstrong. Uh, you know, I ended up doing that. Uh, ended up using what I learned from that to know about the music in, in computers. Ended up using my my natural ear with music and to writing music which got me the gig playing gigs i played gigs for 30 years i made a ton of connections loved people started doing things like emceeing beach party and emceeing community events and my name became a bit of a brand and then when i was old enough to listen to some advice from some really smart people they just made a good point of always um being good to the community even though they were doing well they always gave back gave back I watched people like Harry Merton, like Brian Minter. Um, oh, gosh, I can name so many. Jeff Fortin. There were so many great people who had success and didn't just take it and run. They kept growing the bank, right? Yeah. They kept growing their life pension. Yeah. And um, I watched those people and thought, if I can just build my name, build a brand, and um, just keep giving back, keep giving back, it's going to come back to me. Yeah. And so really it's been a perpetual um, cyclical karmic wheel of, I, you know, you just keep doing good by people. And look, I'm far from, from the perfect guy, but I will say that I can honestly, 80% of my life, I can say I really did work at finding the positive uh, in a situation and the positive in people and using my talent and my gift to, to give back in any way I could. So I'd auction off my shows to, Bowls of Hope or to any charity that could use it. I, I couldn't afford to pay the money. I couldn't afford to write a check. Yeah. Like, you know, like a corporation would for donations. So I said, well, look, you know, my show goes for X amount of dollars. I'm going to let you have my show to auction off. I won't take a nickel. You do it. And we ended up auctioning up to 10, 10 a year. So in that, you meet great people. And then my gift was that I got to go play at these people's houses, got to talk to them, got to give them a gift. Well, they already gave us a gift. Um, I feel like I'm rambling on, but no, anyway, awesome. uh, the bottom line is for the music industry, for me, uh, it has a shelf life. I think I did. I never wanted to be the old guy in the room of playing for young people. I, you know, and so, um, I developed enough of a business model in myself that I could do another pivot. And that pivot was 
opening rooms up for younger artists, opening doors that they might not have open. And so I knew a lot of guys who were very talented who weren't working or who had experienced bad management in the past. And I by no means wanted to be a manager or an agent, but um, by the time this new portion of McDonald Entertainment was born, I had 18 rooms running steady with 150 artists a week uh, working all over the Fraser Valley. So it's really come in a ama- it's been an amazing journey, but in that I've met amazing people. I've seen amazing, talented, and I, you know, I use this term as a friend. I've seen great kids, talented kids become really incredible, talented musicians. And uh, what a gift that is to this very day. I still get that. So yeah. well, that's we, a long-winded roundabout. But. Well, I think it really ties in because I just saw that uh, Chilliwack Progress article of the fact that your guitar was left um, and then it was uh, stolen and yep. people had it. And you ended up, because of your relations with the community, because um, of what an inspiration you've been, the community kind of uh, surrounded you and helped you. Can you tell us that story? Well, I'll tell you what, it's been a while now, but I could still tear up thinking about the generosity of uh, so many people. So I made a foolish move. I left, I, I left a guitar on a, on, a, on a stage after a gig outside in Caltus Lake. And in my haste to load my gear out, get out of the room, get out of there, you know, you, you go through a process usually, right? Well, I ended up talking to an old school buddy of mine while I was loading my gear out. So he was on and on and on reminiscing and, you know, almost getting in the way kind of, but you, so courteously, I'm talking to him, loading gear in and out, changed up my routine, left, woke up in the middle of the night with, in a cold sweat, realizing I don't remember packing my guitar, got in my van, drove up to Cultus Lake, of course, nothing there, right? Nothing. Waited till the morning, phone the parks board, you know, I did all the proper things and through the, I'm telling you what, don't tell me that there isn't somebody up there watching this because a buddy of mine uh, from the, the, the Curly Kale Cafe there in Vetter just happened to be outside on a break in the morning prepping food, took a picture of these guys, suspicious in the back alley. Anybody missing a guitar was a Facebook post. These two guys, I look at it, it says Trevor McDonald's tagged. I look, there's my guitar case. I know it because I know the stickers in the guitar case. I lose my mind Yeah. immediately. I phoned Mike. Mike, did you see him? No, I didn't. Well, so the race was on. I ran all around town. I collected camera footage and, and this, and I got camera footage. And, and the beauty of social media, I had, I had guys from high school, from the nightclubs, from people I haven't talked to in years that I thought I lost touch with, would, would pull me over on the street and say, buddy, you relax. I got this one. Yeah. I would be uh, in a place that was a little bit sketchy and a little bit dangerous, but I was going to go there anyway to see. They told me to sit in the car. Uh, I got this. Yeah. You know, I, got, I, I get emotional thinking about it. Um, they sat me in the car. They went and scouted the area out. And, and um, long, I mean, I feel like I'm babbling, but. It's a really good story, though. So the long and short of it is, uh, after just 48 hours, this guy could not sell the guitar to anybody. He couldn't get rid of it. Uh, I would literally have people phoning me. Hi, I, you don't know me. I'm just on my way with my kid to go grocery shopping. I saw the guy with your guitar. Should I follow him? And I'm on my cell phone. Thank you. Um, she says, I don't want to get out. I said, don't get out, please. Tell me what street you're on. And I had another friend of mine correspond with where she was. We lost him. Yeah. That was the last night I thought I lost all hope. But so many people phone me like that. The next morning, I get, a, I get a call from a lady in the, in the Pioneer Build-All parking lot. 
530 in the morning. I'm driving by. I see the guy with your guitar. It looks like he's got a, a flat tire. Um, he's here right now. You've got to come. I said, okay, I'm coming down. I'm going to phone the cops because they're just around the corner. So I phoned the RCMP, bless their hearts, and I said, listen, I didn't file a report because uh, I, I, you know, I didn't, I, I thought it'd be a bit of a burden. She cut me off. She said, where is it, Trevor? I said, pardon, she says, the guitar, where is it? We've been following the story. I said, well, right now they're in the, the, the Rona parking lot. She said, we'll, we'll, we'll have a patrol unit on there in a second. And I was coming from Sardis. By the time I got from Sardis, they had three police cars, the guy in custody, and, and a garage sale full of stuff that he had stolen all over the Rona parking lot. Oh, my gosh. And uh, Councillor Jason Lum was there, of course, too. And, you know, he's just one of my great buddies. And he's there making sure everything's going okay. And, and uh, so these RCMP guys, are, is that your guitar? And there it was, my beautiful guitar. And, uh, boy, I tell you, I... I that that's a that's a that's a great that's a great example of everything that I ever talk about with community. When I say the word community, not only um, do I practice that, but I was blessed by it. So I really know what it means yeah. for the community to come together. And that was just for something like a guitar, which really isn't as important to everybody. But that guitar was super special to me because it was a great gift from a friend of mine. It was super important. Yeah. So to this day, I have the guitar. Uh, and thank goodness to the good people of uh, Chilliwack. And that's that story. That's an amazing story because it does speak to how you like your name recognition, people understanding the value that you bring to the community. You bring people together. And under COVID, I really think that it speaks to um, something we're missing out on right now, which is getting together and feeling like a community. And uh, the other part I wanted to talk to you about was Party in the Park, because you're there during those pivotal moments. That was a pivotal moment in my childhood growing up. I like and, to hear that. And you were emceeing that. You were the person that everybody was listening to. And I, I still remember, I didn't realize who you were today in today's footing. But now looking back on that, I remember being like, wow, that person's up on the mic. They're leading the way. Like it's getting us started for a great night. And when I grew up downtown, there was no option of going to Cultus Lake. That cost money and I couldn't get out there. And so whatever's going on in Cultus or Sardis or the other side of town to me was too far. And it wasn't an option for my mom and I because buses stopped running back then at like 5 p.m. The last bus would run. So it wasn't an option. And finding people to give you rides can be embarrassing when you're when you're on a limited income. And so those party in the parks were my whole childhood, my whole summer type of thing. And you were the person emceeing that. So what has that been like for you to be able to have the opportunity to get that your name out there, but also to bring people together? Because that is what you're doing. If you're a good emcee, you're bringing everyone together. Well, let me tell you about party in the park. Um, anybody who knows me uh, knows my love for it way beyond uh, the emcee side of it. Um, I've been blessed. You'll know I never played a party in the park in my life because I did not want to take that showtime away from another musician, another local musician. I, you can look back. I, I did uh, nine of them. And um, I, it was my honest-to-goodness pleasure to book local entertainment 90% of the time. We brought in some showcase acts at the end, but it was always about uh, incredible talent in your own backyard, giving people a chance to shine. Um, the, the event is so important to me, and I want to go over two things you just said. Number one, it needs to come back in some form, most definitely. In that community sense where people can come together once a week, talk about their week, 
get off of Facebook and see each other physically. Um, bring your stroller and enjoy music that is not offensive to the masses that everybody can enjoy. The dance groups, the night market, you name it, right? So it's coming back. I don't know in what form, but I want to speak to another really important part of that. That is the the social aspect for somebody who can't get to Sardis, who can't afford the P&E, who can't afford the water slides. This is uh, the water park is your water slide, right? When you're, when you're low income downtown, this is what I think a lot of people miss the point on. I was you, buddy. I, I lived, I went to Central School. Central Park was, that's where I would have been if I was your age. I would have been there. Why? Because I could fit in there without questions asked. You know, I don't know if you were like me, but, you know, we couldn't afford hockey. And I don't want this to become a, you know, how poor were we? But I will say these are things when you read books like Outliers uh, by Malcolm Gladwell, you know, great book. There's benefits to um, a good upbringing. Right. Um, Couldn't my mom would never pay for a season of hockey. There's not a chance. It was 300 some odd dollars for equipment and registration. And I was a good athlete when I was a kid. I was a tiny little guy, but I had the heart of a bear. And I would have loved to have uh, skated and grew, you know, so I missed that whole part of it, right? There's things that you miss. There's ski trips to Hemlock with your school, field trips, um, where you have to pay $12 for registration. And your mom's like, there's not a chance of giving you $12. I love you, but no way. You, what, what am I supposed to do? Well, you can deal with it. And then we put on our bulletproof shield and we make an excuse or we called in sick. Um, you know, it's, it's bad enough to not belong on a daily basis in school, but even worse when you're excluded on things like that. And I'm so grateful now there's programs like Bowls of Hope and stuff where you can feel like you're still a part of something and not have to be so afraid to ask. You don't have to put your pride aside, right? So what, what Party to Park is most important for for me is it's a gathering spot for people that can't get out of the downtown core, that maybe come from Fairfield Island, that come from a five-mile radius around that area to be somewhere peaceful, safe, and experience some culture and say that I was a part of that. And that's what is, above all, the most important part for me. So you'll see when I'm on stage, I am coming right. I would rather be off the stage on the ground. It's about bringing good people together to experience really good people. Yeah. And everybody, everybody deserves that, regardless of your income. I champion um, causes of poverty because I was that kid and I know the emotional damage it can do. And uh, it's just so important. So thank you uh, for sharing that because that makes me feel like uh, all of my thoughts about it are correct. You're one guy and look at you now, look what you're doing. You're one guy who, who I think, honestly, I think you're a rare gem. You see, I mean, I don't think I've met anybody your age who's quite as, I don't know. I, you're just, you're deep, buddy. Thank you. I can't explain it, but, uh, you know, I appreciate you for saying that. And I hope that uh, it touches other people that way. I really do. I do too. Cause I, I'm that kid who my school was putting on a, a trip to, um, I think it was Sun Peaks and my mom was able to get the $70 together, wow. but we didn't know about the fact that you needed ski gear. And I didn't even think of that. So there was me skiing on the hill in jeans, embarrassed and ashamed because I didn't realize and having those opportunities, like I felt wealthy at party in the park. Like I didn't feel impoverished during those moments because what's a churro three dollars like i could scrape together three dollars but it's those events where you are at the peony and it's 
$25 to get a pass for this and it's $50 to go ride this ride. And those are the things that really, and Party in the Park was never that to me because you can afford most of the things there. Maybe there's some clothing you can afford, but pretty much everything that's kind of fun to do is accessible. I got to do karate when I was like eight or 10 or something like that and do that in front of everyone. And it was an opportunity for me to showcase Adam. something. Exactly. So there's a great example, and Adam's another great uh, leader. I know you had Bill Turnbull on, on this show as well, but Adam's another great leader who, who, if he knew your story, Adam would take you in free of charge and, and, and help you. That's what I'm talking about. It's experiences like, and you talk about it so passionately. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. There's empowerment in belonging. There's empowerment in not feeling like you've got to uh, first put up the bulletproof shield before you can even act. Do you know that? When you spend, like literally, I feel in my life, I spent grade five here in Chilliwack, coming in here as a grade five guy, grade five probably to grade 11 uh, with a bulletproof vest around me. Um, I had beautiful teachers, two of them that I know, and I, anybody who knows me knows that I'll talk about Margaret Paulding, my music teacher in Central Elementary, who saw all the weaknesses that I was suffering and cared for me in every way she could. She paid private for private trumpet lessons. She, she introduced me, she brought me to junior high school out of, of elementary school, introduced me to the music teacher. She did everything that um, she knew I desperately needed. And when she passed me off, there was a grade 11 theater teacher who literally said, uh, you know what, you can be, you can try and be funny boy with me, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna buy your shit. I'm not gonna buy it. So we're going to be real with each other, right? And uh, opened my eyes to, um, I could trust her. And I could, for the first time in so many years, just feel like, you know, I could breathe almost, you know? And I always had a really good, happy face shield on. But I didn't start feeling really like I belonged even in high school till probably December of my grade 12 year, like the last six months where I made some really wonderful friends and was more secure with myself yeah um boy it's a it's a funny life man i agree i i don't think i got that until a couple of years ago that feeling of secure and it partly came with starting this and believing that i had some a, a perspective that other people didn't have because a lot of my teachers i was called dense um i was told i wasn't going to graduate um i was called an, one of my teachers in front of me and my mother said that i have narcissistic personality disorder um just these comments that really shook my, these are the professionals. Like I know my mom has a disability, so she's not on the right footing. I'm not on the right footing. I'm 15. I can't defend myself. I don't know what's right. My mom doesn't know what's right. And the teacher's telling me I have this personality disorder that I should go get checked out. But that was, as you said, the shield, the protection. That was me trying to look and behave like I had everything figured out, even though I was at 12. At 15, though. Yeah. And you're trying to control, you're trying to play the adult. I was playing the adult. did you find your whole life you've had to play the adult? Yeah. So at an early age, my uncle was the one who kind of said, hey, your, your mom, she's got limitations of her own. And so you're going to have to step up here. And I was 12 or 13 at the time. And that's when I started going to the store with my mom and calculating, okay, a pack of toilet paper, it's 12 for $5 or it's 24 for $10. Which one's the better deal? Trying to sort those types of mathematics out and knowing that that was the only way we had enough food till the end of the month. If I didn't do the math, 
we didn't have food till the end of so the month. So you're doing family budgeting at 15 years old. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I have to confess, I, I didn't have it that bad. I, and quite frankly, I was kind of a selfish little guy, you know, like I, you know, my mother being, being the youngest of 10, my, the worst of my mother, I'll say was uh, unleashed on my, my, my version one of my family, the, right. the hard drinking, hard partying, yeah. Uh, mother of mine. Um, that being said, it was no picnic um, growing up because she, my mother was felt entitled. To, I feel now looking back, she felt entitled that, um, you know, I've devoted my whole life to kids. I, I, I'm, I'm taking some time for me. And right. um, she never came to any of my, like my mom wouldn't know. She passed away when I was 22. And she wouldn't even have known that. Um, I mean, she knows now because she's literally here with us right now. But, um, she would never have seen a show would never have seen uh, and she didn't come to any of my elementary school concerts or high school stuff and i mean i don't want to i'm not whining about it i'm just saying that um you know there are things that you kind of you know i was jealous of kids who had the kool-aid moms and stuff uh, i was fortunate that a lot of my friends at the time were very sympathetic to my situation and almost kind of adopted me in like i mean i spent half my life i could think of two uh two people that i probably spent most of my teenage years with in their house so yeah and and don't get me wrong my i i love my family i had a beautiful i have a beautiful relationship with all my family um i'm just speaking to the fact that there the was reality no, there's no rebar in the ground for my family yeah. and it's so very important um in your internal build to, to have that. I saw that with my friends. Like I saw some of my friends, like I thought I had it bad, but then I would see this person with two parents while the dad beats the child. And so it was like, oh, what is worse? And there isn't a right answer. It's, it's personal circumstance. But understanding that a lot of people have things behind closed doors that it looks picturesque, but there is a lot of struggle. And the thing I'm grateful for, the thing that I think makes my circumstance so positive is that my mom never stopped believing that I could go do things. And she always pushed me to ask, like her famous comment like, that I'll always remember is ask a better question. And so that gives life to what I'm doing here is I don't... Like I try and make sure that the questions I ask, I'm not repeating what you've heard from journalists or what you've heard from other people. I want to make sure that I'm developing on a better question. And that has driven me farther than I think I realized at the time. Exactly. And so, but seeing other people's circumstances, you realize that we've all got these demons, these struggles, these things that we're trying to, to protect ourselves from. But it's about bringing those to life and sharing that with people so that we can talk about how to move forward in the best way. But when we're busy trying to cover it up, we're not moving forward in any good direction. My, my thing for me was that I, I, um, I can really see it. I can look at a, at a pod of kids and I can see immediately, I can see me in that pod. I never had kids of my own. I, I so fortunately uh, got to share my wife's uh, kid with her since she was 12. She's 29 now. So we have a beautiful relationship, but not one of my own, right? Yeah. So I never had a chance to coach a soccer team or a hockey team or, do you know what I mean? In that respect, I never had to grow up and I never had a chance to mentor or um, spend time with maybe a kid who could have used that up. Yeah. That's my one big regret. And now knowing that I could do that, but there's no social acceptance, you know, I, I can see in a pod of kids playing when I'm driving 
A to B and I look over to schoolyard, I can see me in that pod. It takes me four seconds to see which one is Trevor in that, in that pod right there. Yeah. Which one's getting bullied and is playing cool. You know, which one is, uh, you know, there's so many stories, man, you know, like I said, I mean, uh, you know, we, we, we just tend to bury a lot of stuff as human beings. And uh, I think podcasts like this are important for anybody who cares to listen to them. Um, you take the nuggets out of them, right? Like a lot of it for me, I babble all the time, but there's a couple of nuggets in there. I think that, um, you really gotta, and it's so cliche, but man, you gotta love people. You really gotta, you gotta give the love. And, um, yeah, I had the opportunity yeah. to uh, see somebody else. I was at Save on Foods a couple of weeks ago, and there was a kid standing there at the self-checkout, and the lady was staring at him, waiting for him to pay. He was probably like 13, and uh, his parents weren't coming inside to come and pay for the groceries. He was just standing there. And then so I just went over to the um, the kind of management area, yeah, yeah. went over there, said, hey, what's going on with this uh, this kid? He's just standing there. They were like moving his stuff out of the way. They were like, okay, come to the side. They were kind of moving him around. And I was like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, he doesn't have any money to pay, but he's got all these groceries. So I was like, just charge me. I don't care. Just pay. Let's get let's get this kid out of here. Let's let him take See, home his everybody diet. should should be in that mindset. And I, you know what? Honestly, I got to say, Aaron, you, you know, you've you've been here a long time and you've interviewed people and you there's a ton in this community in general. Yep. I know that I always wave the flag for Chilliwack being extra special, but there is truly something special, whether it's the water or the, the farmland or whatever we got here. We have an incredible amount of people that would, would literally give somebody the shirt off their back here. We're blessed to be here. This is a rare, uh, a rare community. I completely agree. I am so grateful to be here. And the more I learn about Chilliwack, the more I learn the history of the mountains and what people saw from thousands of years ago, it's, it just reinforces how deep the, the environment we're in is. And it gives you greater appreciation and being able to see people like Lucas Simpson starting his art career and people just getting started and wanting to, like um, the person I had on recently was Alex Hart and he's a photographer and he noticed that all the grads are having a real problem getting photography done because uh, money's tight. And then also there's no celebrations. So he pivoted and decided to, hey, I'm gonna spend an hour with you, not 15 minutes. I'm not gonna rush you. You're gonna share your story with me while we do this. And we're gonna have some fun taking photos for Beautiful. your memories. And when people do that, when people take that extra 45 minutes out of their day to hear it, it changes a whole person's experience when they look back at their graduation. And he also makes a point of not making the photos too focused on like pivoting your on head pose, and turning your, yeah. yeah, the pose. It's about, this is your memory. You wanna look back on this in 20 years and be like, I got through COVID, but look at how happy my face was in that photo and be grateful for the memories you have here. And I think one- I needed him in my high school photo. So did I. Um, one of the biggest struggles I had was I grew up downtown too long and I didn't experience this. I didn't experience the great outdoors of Chilliwack. You can only get here by car. And so realizing that I had a dislike for Chilliwack because I was stuck so deep down inside of it that I didn't go to the Sardis. I didn't go to Cultus. I didn't go to the Vetter River. I didn't go to these locations that give you that appreciation for the beautiful landscape, uh, the stories, the history of it all. And the more I've learned about it, the more grateful I've become to and be here. How old here. are you, Aaron? 25. Okay, so if I was as um, mentally aware as you were at 25, 
I would be Premier of Canada right now. I'm telling you right now, the beauty of watching you and listening to what you're saying is that I'm almost envious of your your youth in, in, in the way that you are going to do so much good for people, right? You're, you're young. You're still, you, you have 20 years before you're me sitting in this chair, 20 years to really um, continue to just do positive, right? Think of the good things you're going to do in the next 20 years. And, and I'm, I'm grateful for people like you. I, you mentioned Lucas Simpson. You mentioned we have such a good um, crew of young folks coming up right now in your 20s. But I think of the 35, uh, early 40-year-old guys that have been passed the torch now for, for nonprofits like Bowls of Hope. And the older guys that are stepping off now who are turning 60 and maybe 65 who have done their time and have given, I mean, without question, service above self. Um, they've now passed the torch to the younger generation in, in their 40s. And I feel so good knowing that the next generation, which is you in your 20s, we're just, it's just getting better and better. I really feel that. I absolutely agree, but it's from getting the, like, I don't think we can do it without getting the wisdom from the people who've been there, done that, and struggled, and seen all the challenges. Like, I think that that's one struggle my generation seems to have, is believing that there is something about history that is worth learning and incorporating, because often we look at history and we go, well, those people were so ridiculous. Why would we do that today? And it's like, right, but those people actually thought that they were doing good, and they th that's what they thought. They're, they were wrong, but that's what they thought, and we need to understand where people were coming from previously in order to make not make the same mistakes because it's easy to believe when you're going in the right direction that you can do no wrong and when you have like I really don't want to be a person who just thinks I'm doing right people are saying I'm doing right so I'm just going to keep going until I hit a brick wall because there's consequences of going in the wrong direction and chasing that too far well we've proven that up till very recently haven't we yeah um, there's there's no excuse for um, burying the past yeah. there is every there's no excuse for you not digging up the past either there's no excuse you know you're as guilty for not knowing the past it's there it's there at your disposal i mean you know all this tragedy that's just happened recently in 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 Kamloops is a great example of you know i i had i had friends of mine who told me these stories 25 years ago and, and just as traumatic, just as terrible. Um, it's important that people look past the fact, well, they never told me. I never knew. Uh, it, was, it, was looked, it, was, it was buried back then. You have to do your job as a human being to educate yourself, to find out. Um, what, I, I'm loving so much now, and I'm kind of roundabout getting to your point, is that I'm loving so much now that you, you can't hide the truth. Not in today's day and age. Yeah. You can't hide it. Um, it's it. There's too much out there to be uncovered, and people are not going to sit back anymore and just take it. They're going to. They want the truth, yeah. and so um, that's another thing that I'm really happy about. For it's gonna it's gonna provoke pain. It's gonna provoke all kinds of things, but it. It's also going to promote healing in every way. Yes, and that is one of the hopes I have is because for me, what I hope people get out of the 215 lost children is that 
First, those are a lot of role models that we, we may have lost. There are a lot of people that could have set a better example, who could have been chiefs, who could have led their community in a better direction, but also recognize that there are people here today who survived and who are all messed up because of what they went through, and then they had children, and that's, that's my mom, and then those people had children, and that's me today. My grandmother went to Indian residential school. My mom has FASD because of the drinking that went on because of my grandmother, and then there's me today. And so I can see within my own lineage intergenerational trauma that's occurred, but the, the thing I want people to get out of it is that we can't just have the negative story. And that's why I really like Nicola Campbell, who's an, a children's author, is because she's trying to give Indigenous children the tools to do better. Because one of the fears I have is that we're not giving Indigenous kids today the story of what, it, what does it look like to be successful? What does, it like, what, what does it look like to beat the odds? What does it look like for these things not to weigh you down? And as a Native court worker, when I was working at the Chilliwack courts and the Abbotsford courts, there isn't a, a mindset of how do I get rid of alcoholism start a, a successful business or start a job that I actually enjoy. There isn't that conversation taking place that gives them the tools to go and succeed by their own definition, whatever that looks like, because they're told that the government did this, this is all the government's fault, and so there's, what, what do you do if the whole system is built against you? And that's what my role as a Native court worker was, was to give them that confidence, we're going to get you through this court process, we're going to resolve your court matters, we're going to get you some counseling, and we're going to try and find you a job you actually want to go to. And we're being real, exactly. and we're being legit. Yes. We're not just reading a textbook yep. and following step A, B, C, and D. I'm here, look me in the eyes, I've got your back. Yeah. You know, and and, uh, and big, again, Aaron, you know, big respect to you. You know, like I said, um, but I, I just, again, I always have to find some form of bright light and just believe that um, the right people are going to uncover the right truths. And, and, and in the end, justice will be served. I just... And I don't just mean in this particular circumstance. I mean in so many. And I'm talking anybody who's ever had to suffer at the hands of abuse. I mean, my family went through it intensely. Um, In a different way, but the same pain. Um, And and, uh, for you, you're the, the prime example of generational effects of that. But... You're a flower in the weeds, man. You know, like, again, you pivot, right? And, and if somebody doesn't break the trend and believe that there can be better, what do we, what do we, what do we have? Exactly. And that's why I love, it's a dark um, metaphor, but people who get abused, abuse. But that's actually less true than people who are abused end up not abusing because that's the majority of people. And so that shows that people can be hurt, but they don't continue. Some do, but a lot of them don't. And those are, those are role models. Those are people who are setting an example of how to do things different and how to process the hell that you've been through and go in a different direction. And some can and some can't. And yeah. that's, again, that goes to what I first talked about in the beginning of the, of the broadcast was, you know, some people have the, the inner strength and it's not a, you know, it's not a, a weakness or whatever that you don't. But I'm saying some people have that capability to, to pivot and to grab that last rung and pull yourself out, out and up. Yeah. And others, they don't. They're, they're tired. They're done. They're, they're, their previous spirit is, is beat already. Yeah. Do you know? So I, I, I am by no means uh, uh, an expert in anything. I, 
I do uh, I, I do watch the human condition, and I do I do watch very closely how people are, and I uh, I just try to surround myself with the positive all the time, you know. Right. And uh, I'm habitually negative. Like my me as a person, I I am. I mean, my poor wife, right? I I am seventy thirty negative over positive. You'd never know that by my public persona because I try to keep the smile going and and keep it up. But it's a struggle for me every day to um, get up and find the good. Takes up maybe a quarter of my daily energy. Yeah. But you do though. Well, what has that been like for you? Because you're right, you go into the circumstance where everyone's looking for the show, you're the show. What has that been like to kind of carry? Because you having an off night, that's not really an option. People aren't um, maybe as interested in hearing that. They want, I saw you last week, I can't wait for the same type of show tonight. That's exactly it. And, and it's it's literally, you know, like, it, it, and you go, you go to a house party and somebody's like, you're going to sing tonight, you're going to... You singing tonight? No, buddy. No, I'm not singing. Here's my wife reading you know, crackers and cheese. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not your entertainment tonight. But the insecure person in me feels, oh, I, I guess I better turn it on now. Yeah. I am the guy, literally, and I say this to a lot of people. I am the guy that would at a at a house party. I'm the guy who would go stand in the kitchen, you know, yeah. eat the celery, yeah. and then a couple of people drift in, and I talk with them. Um, when I have to be on, I'm on, and I. You'll know I'm nervous because I'm trying to be funny or I'm funny. Yeah. The more nervous and insecure I am, the funnier I can be, right? That yeah. was a gift. Yeah. Thank goodness. Because yeah. it, it got me friends and, and didn't get me dates, but got me girls who liked me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I got accepted through being funny. I had a sense of humor. And, you know, from my youngest days of being an insecure kid, seeing the reaction of someone laughing at something you're doing. Wow. And then getting the positive affirmation from playing a proper G on a ukulele. Oh. You know, and then there was one of my sisters who, who um, it's all in the attention you're seeking, right? And how you get it. Yep. Um, I was fortunate enough to, to realize that music, if I, you know, if I nurtured that talent a little bit, people will like me, man. I, you know, so it was a necessary need for me. It was a need to crawl out from under that grade four, grade five, really insecure, shy, bullied kind of um, persona to come out now. And I think, honestly, that's a great deal of why I am who I am is because I will always have that soft underbelly that has been really hurt and really, um, really vulnerable and still to this very day insecure. Right. If somebody said the wrong thing to me, I still cower like I'm, you know, 10 years old again, right? You recoil. Um, you just learn how to master it a bit better. How did you end up doing that? Because that sounds like a lot of, like, I can't imagine what it would be like to have people approaching you all the time, kind of being like, play a song, do something, entertain. Alcohol. Yeah. Alcohol. So for me, uh, my, you know, my, my years, once I found I could pad um, a lot of feelings with booze, look out, look out, man. Yeah. Once I knew that I could be a better guitar player, better singer, I wasn't afraid to go on stage. And, you know, for me, I've played literally over 10,000 shows, right? And I've played in front of thousands of people. And every single show, whether it's 10 people or 1,000 people, I almost get sick the week before up to a gig. I, I play it through my mind a thousand times, and I, I never got over the stage fright. Never. 
uh, I would play, I played Wednesday nights at the Jolly Miller for 17 years and I was nervous till the second song every single Wednesday for 17 years. Yeah. And then imagine times that by five, seven gigs a week, yeah. eight gigs a week, having that height of anxiety. And so I ended up having it with, you know, four beer, a couple of shots, right? Yeah. You start, that's your pad. All of a sudden that anxiety levels down. Okay, this works. Oh, I'm pretty funny when I'm, when I'm drinking. I'm pretty good at this. Yeah. Pretty loose. And then, uh, and that becomes, that, that's how you give the same show overnight. Is yeah. it, you literally, uh, the best part of you dummies down and the worst part of you comes up. Yeah. When you're at your peak with booze. And so you're me, consistent. So you find that happy medium, and that's what people got for about 20 years, was that really good, could have been way better, yeah. or could have been way worse, yeah. you know? What was that like for you to kind of make that decision, or was, did you even notice? Did it impact you at all? What I noticed is that I used to watch other players play, and I remember judging them, and I'm a pretty judgmental guy, <laughs> but I remember judging them, like, oh, look, buddy's had a couple too many sauces up there. It's a little bit past his prime, that guy. Yeah. He's, oh, look. And then the last of my performing days, back when I was still performing a lot, like, you know, whatever, five years ago, whatever, I was the guy slurring uh, in, my, in my show and missing a guitar part and not caring about it as much. And, and being one of the, the people in the audience, not the guy giving them the show, yeah. I became this guy. That I, that I personally hated. I hated that guy. Yeah. And it dawned on me a few times watching myself on stage. Like, dude, you just missed that whole solo there. You, and now you're laughing about it on stage publicly. Yeah. You're, you're, you, you've become the, the spectacle, not the really cool guy. Yeah. That's what I felt anyway. Okay. A lot of people would say, no, they didn't notice. Yeah. To this very day, people go, oh, dude, I never had any idea. Well, that's your internal fight, right? Yeah. And so there just came a time for me um, where I was just letting myself down every single day. And uh, so my brother, my mother died of a heart attack, just quick. She died, literally talking to my sister on a, on a stool. They were having a conversation and she literally grabbed her chest and died right in front of my sister. My brother was 48 years old, Sean, rest his, rest his soul. My hero, my family, which is my brother, Sean. Beautiful family. Um, raised in terrible poverty, the first generation of my family. Um, grew up, always had this air of dignity about him, regardless of situation. Walked with a, with a, with a, with a swagger. Um, educated, very smart guy. Dodged all the, the troubles, pivoted his way out of it. Moved to Victoria, married a beautiful lady, had two kids, became a stonemason in Victoria, got too old to be a stonemason, gave it all up, came back to Chilliwack, lived in my mother's basement on Lewis Avenue, went to school, UFV, became a social worker, started all over again, moved to Nanaimo, bought a small house, became a social worker, ended up helping others, right? Yep. This is my hero, Sean. He died of a heart attack at 48. So one day I'm on a treadmill about four years ago doing my annual checkup and my doctor stops me mid-treadmill, sits me down, says, no, you got to stop, you got to stop. And now I'm nervous and I'm trying to be funny and he's not taking any of it. He's like, no, he says, he's looking at the, the, the chart. He says, this is bad. This is really bad. Sits me down. He says, I, I'm going to write you a prescription. He wrote me a prescription for nitroglycerin. And right away I'm thinking, okay, I'm 
48. I've done my time. I got my Stan Rogers award. I, I, I got a Paul Harris from Rotary. I, I think I've done good by people. This all makes sense. This is my going out party. You know, this is it. Yeah. And he said, takes, I want you to immediately rest, go leave this hospital, go grab nitroglycerin pills and always carry them in your pocket until I call you again. So I already suffered from anxiety. So now you can imagine a guy who's kind of a hypochondriac anyway, anytime I had a, a slight chest murmur, if I drank coffee and I got indigestion even, I would think I'm having a jammer, this is it, I'm done. Yeah. So my poor wife and I'd be walking the Vedder Trail and I would feel a little tangent, like, oh, I'm gonna go down right in the Vedder Trail, is this how it ends? So I, I did that for eight months. Wow. And in the process, my drinking increased to a ridiculous degree. I thought if I'm going out, I'm going out in flames. I'm going out. I'm going to live. You take me if you need to take me, but I'm not, I'm going out, right? Fast forward to the day I get my big exam. They get me on the table in Vancouver and they give me a little bit of happy juice and settle me down and the needle goes in my leg and up into my heart and they check me out and it was a it was a false positive. So there I am, eight months of this pent-up, am I going to die? What's going on? And the doctor and the nurse are talking about the, a karaoke party that they were at. I was a Monday appointment, so they are talking about Saturday. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe so-and-so sang Queen. Oh, he was so good, so good. Meanwhile, he's in my heart with a camera. Oh my God. And I'm laying there, and I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, man, they're casual. Yeah. And he was done. In about 15 minutes, he said, you're good. That's it. You're good. And he starts talking to the nurse again. I said, Doc, you got to wait. I said, what do you mean? What? He said, you're good. You're good. It was a false positive. You're good. You're clean, clean as a whistle. Wow. Nothing. No, no, no doctors, uh, whatever you call it. No. And I don't think he realized that, that uh, you know, I, who's going to know, right? But eight months I've been there. Yeah. Thinking honestly that my time is coming. And um, then when I got out of that, I was already full into the drink now. Now I'm like, okay, I'm. Now I'm free and yeah. I'm bulletproof. Yeah. And I also like booze. Right. Yeah. Look out. Yeah. Right. And so I just, uh, you know, it just became a, it just became a reckless guy, like just not paying any respect to anybody around me, uh, not respecting my myself most of all. I nothing anybody could ever say to me would would ever uh, replace what I said to myself and the the lack of respect for myself and and. And so the final straw, and I've never told anybody this. I told my wife knows and my close friends know, but I want to share this because I, I think it's important. So this speaks to sobriety for me, right? Like I've been sober now. I'm proud to say I'm sober uh, a year and a half. I just quit and I've been sober a year and a half and I'm really proud of that. Um, so November 10th, a couple of years ago, I was playing a gig for a buddy's wedding. And I did that, you know, that drank too much at the wedding, mouthed off the security guards, tried to drive. Um, I did everything that I just hate in a human being, that I would just detest in a human being. I did it all that night. Um, just disrespected everybody and the whole process. And then, of course, November 11th is Remembrance Day, which is really hugely dear to me. Yeah. Um, I missed Remembrance Day. And I, and, I, and I literally was too hungover to go to Remembrance Day ceremonies. And I'll tell you, it, I'll tell you what, that to me, it's, I'm, a, I'm 
I feel embarrassed to say that, but I did. I missed it. I missed Remembrance Day. So the time when you're supposed to go pay tributes to everybody, I was selfishly so hungover I couldn't even get up. My wife went by herself, had to make a ton of excuses to our friends. Uh, and that was it, man. Um, she came home and said something, whatever she said. And I said, there's, again, there's nothing that you're going to say that's going to make me feel worse than I do right now. And that was the, the November 10th is the last, last day I touched a, a drop of booze. And it's been, it's been 100% fabulous every, every day since then. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, I really like that we got to, I got to share that because I, my close friends know, um, but I, uh, you know, I'm a shining example of, honestly, if I can, if I can be sober, anybody can be sober. I was a terrible uh, uh, alcoholic, uh, worst offender. And I mean, I, I, I got a DUI, um, cost me about $10,000. Um, I, 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 I'm not proud of what I did, but I'm prouder of what I did after because of that. Yeah. So own it and, um, and move on. I really appreciate you being willing to share that on this platform because this is what it's about. It's not about anybody ever being perfect. It's about how we come back from, from those times and how we choose to share those stories with others because I know a lot of people who listen to the podcast, but I know a lot of people from my Indigenous community who could really do good by seeing someone like yourself, someone who's well-respected, who has the love of the media, who has like a, well, a strong foundation within the community, has the respect of small business owners, to have you say that I was here and now I'm not and I got out of it and this is this is what others can do. I think that that is what sets an example for others and it's hard to emulate you if we don't know what you've been through to get to where you are today. Every day is, uh, you know, I, I have bad days. I mean, everybody does. I have days where, you know, honestly, I can slam a beer. I do. I have days like that. But uh, I will say that that 25 out of 30 days are positive. And I believe that everything that I've been blessed with in my life to this point is because of what I've done in the last, you know, the last 16 months, the last 18 months, whatever it's been. Um, you have to give of yourself to get those rewards. I really believe that. Um, and, you know, like this job with the BIA and, and you know, it, just a lot of really good things have, have come forward since, uh, since uh, you know, that whole commitment. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about the BIA specifically? Of course, let's yeah. let's start there. What, what happened uh, with that? Because you obviously moved a little bit more away from entertainment. On goes the story of the pivot. So uh, with music, I didn't want to play live anymore. So I still wanted to promote music and promote same thing as party in the park getting people out in front of people that really wanted to play and man we have so many talented people in this town i gotta say during this podcast please people listening to this podcast go out and support artists go buy go click on a website a random local musician artist visual artist whatever you can do go purchase something i don't care what it is purchase something give it away as a gift do what you got to do uh, there, okay, there's my, my preaching portion done. Um, so the pivot came when my music business was going to be on its best year ever. I had this great locks list that the guys from locks pharmacy, uh, were so 
great to sponsor and it let me showcase uh, businesses with live artists every week online. And so I would phone around and find out what rooms were booking live entertainment and I was booking most of the rooms. So it was perfect. Um, so I could literally promote the rooms that I was booking with these great artists in it and really keep live music humming. Up to March 11th, uh, 2020, uh, so right before COVID started, I had 18 rooms, 150 artists uh, going all over the Fraser Valley. And then fast forward March 11th, within two weeks, we were down to two rooms and about eight artists that were working. It was horrific. And so uh, I switched over to focusing on the artist at the logs list versus the venue. You know, Andrew Christopher has a uh, live stream here and Ben Cottrell's got a live stream and Kyler Pierce has a live stream and Greg Newfield and really pushing the talent that we're doing live yeah. streams, right? Getting them to, with their tip jars, their virtual tip jars. And uh, that ran its course uh, as we came out of that weird first wave of COVID where everybody was kind of sick of live streams and, and they'd given what they could give and their adrenaline was down. Now and the honeymoon was kind of over and, um, I switched over to doing video production for a lot of my radio clients because, you know, I have a radio show. So that also died. So a lot of those radio clients were interested in what I could give them video wise. So I started doing video production. And so that kept, I always had different fingers and different pies. So any advice I can give to any youngins coming up, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Like you, you've got your podcast. You need to have a whole bunch of three other Law different. School. Yeah. There you go. You get a yeah. ton. Yeah. This, this is one good example. This is your offshoot, yep. right? Yep. So perfect. Um, <laughs> just law school. Um, <laughs> you're something else, buddy. Uh, so anyway, so we pivot out of that, went into video production, and uh, I've always been a huge flag waver for Chilliwack, in particular downtown Chilliwack. As you know, I grew up seven blocks from there, dated my first girl, first kiss Central School. Uh, first apartment above Unross TV and Stereo in Wellington. Uh, beautiful little funky place with the Mr. Turtle Pool on the roof. And so I've always been a downtown guy. And when this opportunity came up, uh, Kyle Williams stepped down as the uh, executive director of the BIA. And the opportunity came up. And it's just that karmic wheel, right? That great wheel that maybe it, a bit of my life pension. Yeah. I, that's my life pension paying one of its dividends. What pulled at you for this, for this position? What did you see in it? I was afraid of the position to start with because I didn't think I had the qualifications from an administration point of view that there was a lot. I knew I had the relationships yeah. and I knew that I could bring people together. We need a unified uh, city in general, but in particular, I knew that I could help to unite the business community downtown with our citizens of downtown you know what i mean yeah. i've always been a fan of forging those relationships anyway and and cross networking businesses and uh now i just get paid to do it so i went through four interviews which scared the bejesus out of me and um i thought it would be easier to get the job than it was and i hadn't written a resume since i was 16. Right. so you know i put up this cheesy resume for resumes whatever or us and they laughed at it. My buddy laughed and I gave it to him just with this work. And they're like, dude, what are you doing? Like, so I literally had to study on how to do a resume. Got a buddy of mine helped me out. And went through four interviews, four pretty rigorous interviews. And with every interview, I felt more confident in me as the person in that seat. 
And administration, you can learn. People and networking and years of relationships, you have to earn. 100%. Right? So I just took that as my mission, just like learning how to build a computer, learning how to write music on a computer. Uh, any challenge I've ever taken in my life, you pivot, you adapt, you learn, you grow, you succeed. Right? And so here we are now. I'm three months into this great job that I love more than the first day I took it. Get to work with really good people in town. I, I get to work with all these connections that I've made over the years from, from our mayor to, to SEPCO to the chamber to all these businesses that I've known as good friends of mine, business owners, and some friends that I didn't know very well that I know better now. Yeah. So it, the job is a blessing. Um, and I'm good at what I do. I, you know, I don't, I don't ever say this arrogantly ever, but this job was really made for me. Yeah. And I'll tell you something, something that got me right in the heart. When my guitar got found by all the people, right? I was gutted, like emotionally so thankful. The only time I felt like that after that was when they announced that I got the job for the BIA. And the social media kickback on that was so unbelievably positive and warm. And again, people I hadn't heard of and mentors of mine and, and people that I really respected and loved and, and high school friends and sent these beautiful words of, you're, you're the guy, this, this was meant for you. You're the guy, you've earned this. And it was such a, I mean, you could not ask for a better um, push into the water. Like, you know, I, I, was, I was walking on air for, I mean, I cried, I, I read them, uh, Anyway, I, I read the, um, I read them all, and it was just amazing. My wife and I read them, and it was, uh, it's pretty gutting, man. So, uh, <clears throat> oh, we can do this over again. No, we're not changing oh, anything about anyway, this. Anyway, okay, here we go. Take two. Anyway, um, so I read the um, comments, and and it just fortified everything that you do. You know, it's all those years of of, of, you know, lending that hand and, and doing the work, right? Doing the, putting the rebar on the ground and you, and you do get the rewards. I'm just glad I'm here to get them. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not, uh, that's what this is all about. This is about like the way I came to know your name is because, uh, Bill Turnbull at The Butcher was putting on uh, a Christmas event and he said, oh, this is going to be amazing. You have no idea. Trevor McDonald is coming down here. And the way people talk about you behind your back is the same positivity <laughs> that you saw on those social media posts. Oh, and that's very nice. That is what I get to see and what I'm always trying to work towards. It's not just about that you have a name recognition in Chilliwack. It's that every person I've ever spoken to you and said, hey, do you know Trevor McDonald? Any thoughts? It's always immensely positive. And it's always that person went out of their way. Like if we can just talk for a few minutes about the um, fundraiser you were involved in that raised like over $100,000 and what that does for our community and how you played a role in our community in such a positive way. And you just keep looking for different opportunities. You've tagged me in posts, bringing awareness to local artists. And that to me spoke to, wow, this person is absolutely the right fit for this podcast because they're constantly looking for ways to raise awareness not about themselves but about other people that are doing great things and there aren't 
enough people doing that and you are one of them and that's that is why I'm not having every single person I meet on this podcast it's about those special people who go out of their way who sacrifice and the response you got was well deserved and well it's very kind yeah and people are, are again people are very kind man you know the one the one thing uh, about me is is I everything I do I might not do it right I do it honestly and I you know I don't really have a filter a lot of times and I and I say the wrong things but I'll tell you what, uh, my heart is, is I, one thing I know, my heart's always in the right place. And if I, if I burn a bridge or if I screw up, you know, of course it hurts me, right? Um, you want to take everything back you've ever done. If I had to say, uh, if I had to say sorry to everybody that I ever, you know, uh, disappointed, I, 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 would, I would take it to my grave, man. So you just got to move past that and, and just accept that you, I think the majority of what I've done in my life is pretty good. Yeah. And I've still got lots to do. That's the beauty. Just like you. Yeah. Uh, I still know I've got, I mean, I pray I've got 25 good, solid years of uh, working for this community in whatever capacity it ends up being. Yeah. But talking about this great uh, giveathon you're talking about from last year, uh, I want to just speak quickly before I go on, because the giveathon reminds me of Leanna Kemp uh, from the Chiller Chamber of Commerce and, and, and of so many great. Uh, female, young female uh, leaders that we have coming up in Chilliwack that are just amazing. This speaks to what I'm going back to about you and so many great young folks coming up. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a better time at Chilliwack for female um, uh, females in, in powerful uh, leadership roles. I think that we're so lucky to have that. And I really wanted to, to mention that because this speaks to the Giveathon. Uh, Leanna Kemp, reached out to me and she was the only person that I can think of who really reached out to me during the pandemic. When I was reaching out to a lot of other people myself, you don't want to ask for help, but when someone asks you, it, it really means the world. She phoned me one afternoon and said, what can I, what can we do as the chamber? What can we do to help you? And it kind of caught me off guard. I said, nothing. We're good. Da, 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 da. What, what can we do to help you? Like, what, what do you need? And I thought that's just what a great gift that is. So, um, through that, we put together this, uh, this giveathon, which was uh, the idea formulated into a, a telethon, like the old telethons, right, of the day. And how can we make this work? And so I just formulated an idea that we would do it for 12 hours. And every hour, we'd have a guest host. And so I would bring a great community leader on every hour, and they would guest host the show. I don't know if you watched any of it, but of course, uh, our goal was to raise $700,000. Um, we raised 137, I think, uh, through some really great donations. Um, I think $130 is wonderful, so 130,000 is amazing. And we showcased everything we were supposed to do. We brought in great community leaders to back and forth banter. Well, we had great local artists do segments, musicians, and we had almost every nonprofit, as many as we could fit in the show, uh, do segments about who they were, what they did, really encompassing that and how you can help them through this time. Because, you know, I emceed the hospice gala, I emceed the Bulls of Hope dinners, I emceed the, a, a ton of stuff that involved raising money for these functions that with COVID, no dice, man, yeah. we're not doing it. So this was just a great way to give at least something to these uh, organizations. So I am so proud of the team that worked overtime, uh, you know, Tim McAlpine and Robbie Snooks and, and uh, Matt Hawkins from around Chilliwack and Leanna Kemp and her crew at the chamber. And I mean, I could go on for a day. Uh, Michael Berger from Rotary, 
so many people who put that event together. I was just lucky enough to be, um, I'm always lucky enough to be the guy. And you know, I, I, I'm always looking to be the guy out front, right? And that's the insecure guy in me. You can't be me without a ton of really secure people in the background that don't need the spotlight. I needed it since I was five years old. So this is how good people like that shine too, because they see it in me and they go, dude, you go, you, you be the speaker. And in, luckily I've got the gift of the gab, but I love to be out front. I love to be that communicator. Yeah. I do it honestly. Uh, and people see that like you did at party in the park. So, you know, I'm good to be the conduit, right? I'm good to be the mouthpiece uh, for anything good. And luckily people take my name as a positive brand and as long as I can use that brand to bring awareness or bring money to great, great causes, uh, I'm going to do it. So that's one thing. We're, we're planning on putting a version of that together. Uh, we're actually meeting this month to put together round two of that as well. So That's amazing. Now that we're on the topic, can you just go through some of your favorite local businesses? Because I think that that is valuable for people to understand not only where to go, but why you go there? What drives you to places like the Town Butcher or local businesses that, that you really believe in? Just to give an insight from a different perspective, because I've definitely talked about my favorite places on yeah. the podcast, yeah, yeah. but getting your perspective, what do you see when you go into these businesses? Do you know, for me, I'm a big fan of the underdog, always. I'm a big fan of the the uh, the people who just opened the Indian restaurant, uh, Spice 88, uh, within my downtown BIA border there on the corner of Williams and, and Yale. They're in a tough location. It's always been a tough sell, but they're a beautiful family. They, uh, they have great food. I'm always a kind of pusher for that. You'll see my videos from the BIA or the, the last few anyway have been um, locally owned up and coming businesses just trying to make it work, right? Uh, Woodstone Pizza, things like that. But, you know, I'm sure many people have talked about I can say this just generically to anybody. Find out what stores locally support local. Bill, you mentioned Bill from the Town Butcher. Bill sponsors, he runs ads on my radio show. He doesn't need to, he just does. Because he, can, he does that, that's Bill. That's a guy that I would throw a million people to, not just for what he does for me, but what he does for the community. Uh, Amber Price is someone who, um, you know, she has the book man, right? And, and, for what she does in the community, she's always kind of waving the flag. And, you know, you know, with Bill and with Amber, even with myself, you know, you either love us or, you, you know, we're, we rub you the wrong way. But our hearts are in the right place, right? Um, you know, I just, I'm just trying to think of some businesses offhand. Just do the, do the homework and find out what businesses really, truly support local. I think of Pick Eco. I've had the pleasure just recently of hanging out with the Selena from Pick Eco, which is over also in the downtown core, by the way. And they're just going to kick off their farmer's market this weekend. Um, but she's a person who believes in business, uh, but believes in the business of growing everyone around her, the community around her, as well as the businesses around her. And that will make her succeed. I think that there's a young generation of super hungry millennials out there. They're fearless. They don't want a 50-year-old's idea of how businesses run. Um, I think of the local space in, in uh, District uh, 1881. I think of, um, again, I think of Peak Eco. Um, I think of just so many young entrepreneurs who just go in 
well, my daughter, Chloe, is another one. Like just, she's in Cologne right now, but she's fearless. And she doesn't want to hear your stories of failure, your stories of burning bridges. She sees the light and they attack it like, like literally like a, just a, a, they're just shining stars, man. You know, I, so I don't have a store in particular. I just say shop local, support local. Um, and of course, I, the biggest one for me, people in Promontory on the south side of Chilliwack that have not been to downtown Chilliwack in years, maybe ever. Yeah. That is, if the one job I could do in the BIA before I leave the BIA is have regular traffic from Promontory in the south side to come and see our beautiful north side yeah. and see what, what there is really going on over there. There's, I've done my job. Because it's amazing over on the north side. Not that the south side doesn't have great stuff. But we, there's no reason for us northsiders yep. to feel like we need to escape anymore. We got good stuff going on. Yep. And I think that's where my pride, like the reason why this job fits me so perfectly, is I walk the streets every day with my job, and I go home, and I change into my runners, and my jeans, my t-shirt, my hat, yep. and I come right back downtown, and I walk around again. And I walk so proud through downtown. Yeah. And that's what I want everybody to see, that right there. Yeah. So no favorite store, just stores that support everybody else. Well, and I think the culture as well. Like one thing I kind of learned after leaving the downtown and like losing that mindset of being stuck in the downtown is that there's a lot of community in downtown that you don't get when you're so comfortable that you never have to leave your house or your space. And when you're in downtown, you see people having to help others, even if it's a homeless person helping another homeless person. But when I've had trouble in downtown, it's a lot of those people that are struggling that were there to be like, hey, I've got you, don't worry, you're safe. Like well, everything's become okay. a family within their own. Exactly. I mean, there's a definite, look, there's a, we're a human nature, there, there's a hierarchy in human nature, right? There's, there's always going to be a leader of a pack, a good pack or a bad pack. There's always going to be the mama and the papa of some, to some degree, yep. it, whether it be four people or 40. There's yep. always going to be, you know, the head of the pod, so to speak, right? And so, you know, for me, that situation that, that people kind of immediately think, oh, it's downtown. It's not. It's all over Chilliwack. I lived in Sardis up until November of last year for four years. Yep. It's there just as bad as it is downtown. We have the same problems over there with homeless and with crime and with, with the problems. Uh, we have services on this side, and we're getting more services. I think we're blessed in Chilliwack right now that we have so many services with more on the way. We have a mayor who, as a counselor, was his whole docket was homelessness. He, and he never gave it up when he was married, kept it going, and, and it's still his passion. And the money that's been funneled from federal and municipal government into Chilliwack uh, people should really do some research and realize how much effort is going into it. Yeah. Um, the naysayers will say not enough's being done, but I see it every day. I see progress. And I, again, there's that looking for that positive, right? We're far from perfect. And I am by no means an expert in this. I just see it as Trevor guy who walks the streets and who listens to the right people yeah. talking. I know that change is, is, is coming in. And, um, People are really putting efforts into positive and to trying to help and to give people a building where you can go in and can come out with a sense of, of, of hope. Yep. Not just piece, piecemeal uh, answers to little parts of their problem, but maybe a situation where you could walk in and you could come out. Um, 
you know, we could have that here. Yeah, when you speak of Tim McAlpine, I just think of like, um, I watch a lot of Shark Tank, like a lot of Shark yeah, Tank. Um, and just to think that there's this person who said, where's the entrepreneurship in Chilliwack? Where, where is us creating a space for them? And then he builds a co-work space and he's taking the time to um, talk to me about audio and video because this is all just a side work. Like I enjoy what I'm doing, but it is very hard to learn about audio and video from the outside and YouTube videos are good, but having someone who's able to take the time to say, hey, this is some of the things I learned or some of the basics that might be useful for you to understand and creating a space for entrepreneurs to get started so they don't have to spend a lot of money to start their own office space or to rent and to invest that kind of money there are opportunities to get started right away in the space have you uh, interviewed him yet not yet he's uh him and i just met up and uh he was teaching me about some audio and video I'll and then you, i said i need to bring him on you need to interview him Absolutely. And, and i mean i'm i don't want to speak for him let me let me tell you about a guy like here's an example tim has done more for the community and just done more as a human being he's just he's incredibly gifted incredibly talented Really dry, funny, by the way, also. But um, here's a guy that uh, is so modest and so humble that a lot of people maybe don't know about Tim. Exactly. You know, but yet, so Tim is a guy who makes a guy like me look good. Tim sits back and lets me be that, you know, I, I, I liken myself to that air machine where the, the arms are flailing in the <laughs> Lacking air. Lacking inflated water right? moving too well, bad. Tim is the guy who, who walks over and turns the propane on. Yeah. Right. And then just walks away and lets me flail about and do my thing. So um, he's a guy that is a, a perfect example of a lot of who we have in Chilliwack, who are solid, good rebar on the ground. And the reason why we're so successful as a community is because they do. They're not afraid to share their gift. It, it doesn't come as a cost to them to give you something they've learned. And I've learned so much. Now, we have the Algra Brothers development across the street from my office this great new development downtown, which has been the spark plug for so much good going on downtown. They took a chance on this acre, three acre parcel, four acre parcel, three acre, whatever it is. And they said, we're going to do this. And businesses fell in and they said, we're going to do this. And, you know, you sit with those Algor brothers for half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour. I've been blessed to sit quite a few times with them. And they're more than happy to share anything anything you need, any resource from them. How did you make that successful? What's your secret for this? Here, here it is, man. Because they know in their heart, you're never going to do it like they do it, but we're still going to give you the tools. We want you to succeed. If you succeed, we succeed. Yeah. And that goes back to that exact same thing again. That's like Tim, giving you the tools, right? You're going to be way more successful at a, at a faster rate. Because exactly. he's giving you some shortcuts. 100%. And the idea of this is like, um, I want more podcasts. I don't, they're not my competition. They're, they're support. They're bringing more people to listen to yeah. podcasts in general. I don't have any concerns about other people getting started or doing something similar or raising awareness. Those things are good because it creates the environment for all of us to do better and all of us to share these important stories. And we are very lucky to have people like Tim and people who are willing to sit more in the background and, and allow us to, to take the lead. And I think that those are the stories that are extra important to share because they're the ones that could disappear and nobody ever tells that story of what role he played in Chilliwack and all the different events that have relied on his space, the space he helped create in order to do our elections, in order us to be informed voters and sure. to operate effectively. And you want it to good by him too. You want it, it makes you step up your game. You know, me personally, when I'm working with Tim, I want to make sure that 
his job is 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 easy. I want to make sure my game is an A game because he brought a very humble A game without question. Yep. So I want to be able to step up and make sure I'm I'm there with him. And that goes with anybody that I work with. It presents that thing. One thing I do want to say also is never you're never too old to search out mentors. I don't care if you're uh, 80 years old. You know, always if there's a mentor out there to <laughs> to help you in some way or there's something you can learn, hitch on that ride, man. I don't care. I'm 53 and I still every day if there's somebody who uh, can offer me some 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 really good words, I hook on to them like a like a you know just this a sponge. I just want I want it. You know what I mean? I feel so blessed to be in this chair right now because I get to hear people's full stories from front to end and get an understanding of where did it go wrong? Where did it go right? Where did it, where did the opportunities arise for them? And because it's my education, I learn from your experience and the stories you share of, wow, okay, entertainers might have it harder than we realize. And we kind of take them for granted because we think they're just extroverted people that it's so easy for them to turn on when really maybe turning on takes them a week in advance. And that is the learning experience and the humility that I can go into new opportunities and meet new people and say, hey, if you, if there's anything I can do to make this experience easy for you or improve the experience, let me know because I'd like to. Like, I want to make sure that when guests come on, they feel recognized, heard, that they feel comfortable. Like, I, I tried my best to find good outdoor chairs because I knew that this was going to be a lot to ask people to sit outside in the sun or in whatever weather it is. Well, I mean, I'll tell you as, you know, besides it was a two-mile walk to get to your interview site, uh but here we are in in beautiful shady acres yeah. british columbia um your research and your your prep package and your professionalism in in your whole presentation uh speaks anybody who is going to do this uh podcast in the future and i encourage if you're asked to do it to definitely do it um you'll see the package is, is there's nothing you're missing when you come here. I mean, there was nothing, you didn't throw me any curveballs that I didn't want to discuss. And I'll be really honest with you. You sent me questions today and, and I, I think I looked at them for about 10 seconds because I, I don't really want to know what you're going to ask me. I, I think that I just, I knew I wanted to share uh, a few stories with you, which I didn't thank you for that. But, um, you know, for the most part, the fun part for me was the first night I, I, I started my job with the BIA March 1st this year. And my first house that I ever bought, my mom always said before she died, said, do me one favor. All I ask of you as a human being, I never said go to school. I never said be a doctor. Please buy real estate. You'll never regret it and never let go of your real estate. Please buy that. And I never got it. I never said, then she passed away. Um, and because of the real estate she bought, even as a welfare mother who had no money, she left our, everybody, all the existing kids in our family, about $12,000 each with the sale of her house in Nanaimo. I took that money and I put it as a down payment on my first house, which was on Victoria Avenue in downtown Chilliwack, which if, if you're from Chilliwack, you know, where I work at the BIA office at Five Corners, it's literally a three-minute walk. So when I leave my office every day, I go right by the first house I bought when I was 22, 23. So I'm 53 now. So literally I walk by 30 years. So I get to relive my my story every single day when I come home from work. And I get to go, dude, what, what a journey, man. 30 years. That's seven more than you've been alive, buddy. And, and that's just in my little 
first house. So I'm so excited about what you get, like your next 30 years, your walk is going to be like. Yeah, I already see it because I look at downtown and I think, wow, like I relied on these these people and these people like Ron Laser was a role model to me. Yeah. I absolutely looked at him and said, you own a business. These staff members are looking at you to, to guide them and you're helping me out. And that's always blown my mind. And this opportunity to be able to sit down with people who've played such an amazing role. Like I had Leonard Weens on who runs the Royal Hotel. Yes, I like and he's he gave me my first opportunity at a real adult job where I had to wear a dress shirt. And I was struggling with weight issues, with confidence issues. And he was like, oh, I'm going for runs. You should come for runs. And just creating that environment where it's like, you're, you're way older than me and you've got your exercise under control and I don't. And that encouraged me. And he gave me opportunities to find my place and use social media for the hotel to try and, try and bring awareness to it. So when I started the podcast, I was like, I need to bring you on because hotels are struggling right now. And I'd like to raise awareness of how amazing you run your business and how you try and take care of your staff and how well you treat them, how you choose them. So you can give them a leg up, not just who's the best candidate, who's got the most potential long term. And look what you did yeah so d you did interview Len yes so imagine how proud he was sitting in this chair yeah. knowing that a little thing that he did was so monumental for you yeah. um you know I, I speak to that for me do you know my music teacher I go back to my music teacher from grade five to grade seven when I was in grade seven she wrote we didn't have yearbooks in in elementary school but you would grab a piece of full scap and you get all your buddies to write goodbye for the year end, right? You know, annuals in high school. So we would all write on each other's pieces of paper, have a good summer, you know? And my music teacher wrote the most beautiful thing ever. And it was like, I truly, you're the, my best music student I've ever had in all my years of teaching. And I, I truly believe you're gonna be on TV and you're gonna have records someday. And I was just, I, I just thought, oh, it was just, it was everything to me. Like that just was beautiful. And I kept that. And I kept that and I played a gig about four years ago and she came out for the first time to watch me play and I gave it to her shoulder. I kept it and I got to give it to her after all those years. And uh, she always kind of gets a bit weirded out because I'm so over, you know, I really, I just have so much love for her to this very day. And even when Central School did its 90th reunion, she was there again. And of course, I just fondled over and it. It's hard the for them lady. to understand, though. But, like, but I think she's getting it now after the 50th time I've mauled her like bear cub. But, you know, teachers, I, you know, teachers out there, boy, just make one difference in one. Just make one difference. I see my old buddy Steve Anderson is retiring, who's a teacher at Chilliwack Senior, Chilliwack Secondary School, whatever you call it now. Steve is just leaving after leaving a legacy of great um, inspiration and events. And uh, it was so important in the Chilliwack 50 year reunion. And He's retiring now, and I just think about how many. Like, I'm the guy who cried watching Mr. Holland's opus, right? With Richard Dreyfus, like, all the students came back and performed his opus for him. And I just think I'm never going to be a school teacher, but I would love to leave a legacy like that where you've affected people and you've impacted people in that way. So, some of the small stuff you've said, and, and, I, and I experience it every day. I'm blessed through social media and through my job with the public that I. I get that gratification and that thank you a lot. Yeah. And my wife says to me too, she said, you know, you're so lucky that in your job, I mean, even as a performer, you get applause and you get, you know, you get that fortification and that adulation and whatever, you know, yeah. it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty blessed life. It really is. So that's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit more about what it's like to be a radio host? Because that is something I've never 
Like, I don't know what that's, what that's like to experience. So I was blessed again uh, with the guys at 89.5 The Drive. So new radio station comes into town. And uh, it's a funny story, actually, because I initially, when you have to apply for a, a broadcast license. So some of the older, well-established guys in town grabbed me for another application to go sit on their panel. Well, this other crew came in and they had their time in front of the CRTC. So they, we both do our hearings. I'm a, I'm a deer in, in the headlights. I had no idea of the process. Didn't know what I was doing there. I, it was a generous ask, but I think they expected a little more than I was going to deliver. But here's a great Fraser Valley personality. Here I am trying to do my best and I, I can feel myself dying. Long story short, we lost the bid. But the other guys, 89.5, the drive won the bid. So a year and a half goes by, I go in and knock on their door and say, hey, guys, you know, uh, I would really like to put a 70s show together on your show. Like maybe just maybe I could do it as a kind of a special guest come in and do the show. And they, they weren't having anything of it. But times changed. The format changed. Uh, they got their foot in the ground in Chilliwack a little bit more. And honestly, I think that they found out a little bit more about who I was. And so I was pretty genuine. And, and um, Kevin Gamble, who's not there anymore, he was the station manager. He's a great guy. And, I, he he finally broke. He said, I, I want you to come in. We've got an idea for a show. Nothing but 70s. And we want to give this to you. And I said, okay. And being me, I said, I'm going to go buy, I'm going to go sell it. I'm going to go sell it. And okay, go sell it. It's Sundays. I mean, I don't know how many people are going to sell it to, but go get them. Well, I ended up selling it to the point where it was, you know, a lucrative situation for me. It was very good. Yeah. And I did that for a long time. And the drive brought me in gave me basic production skills had a really good staff like they still have sadie there and glenn slingerland they're the remaining two from when i started but the staff there was so supportive it's so like dude we know you're not a radio guy but we know you're gonna be okay yeah gave me the tools of the trade and it was probably brutal in the beginning i don't even know i would love to hear some of the first shows but i thought i was amazing of course but fast forward nine years later, and I'm still doing it, and it's an 80s show now, and it's on Saturdays. It's called Ultimate 80s on the Drive, and you can stream it, which is fun, 895thedrive.com, every Saturday, 8 to 12 Pacific Standard Time. And so I didn't have to go to radio school, but I was a DJ at a nightclub for a long time, and I did have the gift of the gab, and I do have a very thorough knowledge of music. I'm a music nerd. If you if we did this podcast in my house, you'd see I've got a library full of 500 books and 490 of them are music. Yeah. One of them is Outliers and maybe a couple other that make me look intelligent <laughs> that I've never read. Yeah. So um, anyway, yeah. So there, that's that's the, the quick does, and short of... How does that compare to being live in front of an audience? What was that transition like? Was it different? Different animal. Yeah. It's a completely different animal and just as fun. It, at one point when I thought my life was about as perfect as it could get, minus the booze, um, I had a radio show that could promote community. I was on stage playing music and on stage emceeing events, galas, party in the park, Canada Day, where I could promote my radio show and promote the community. And then I was um, in, in, in my person playing live just being rock and roll guy that they might've heard on the radio or might've seen him sing these galas. So I had this great cyclical, fully working machine of 
And all I had to do was spit out the message, you know? And so once I saw that I could make a difference with my message, then I could start saying, well, hey, Bowles of Hope needs some help. And then Mike Shulka, who I just rest in peace, uh, Mike, who we lost again way too soon, just, just recently. Uh, I met Mike and he immediately had me clicked on Bowls of Hope, him and Norm DeVoe. And we met at Tim Hortons, Starbucks, I think it was Starbucks. And we met and Mike was just contagious with his energy and his passion. And he said, you, I can use you to spread the word. And honestly, together with a great group of people, Bowls of Hope really went from kind of a, a smaller secondary nonprofit to, and I'm not taking any, please, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that using people like myself to spread the message, it's become a really powerful tool. And my sell on it was that I was that kid at Central School who didn't bring a lunch. I was embarrassed to bring a lunch when my buddies had a lunch with wrapped up cookies and real milk. And, you know, I would sit and stare at their lunch and act like I wasn't hungry. Yeah. You know, so I got Bulls of Hope to the T. You didn't, you, you would never have to go without a meal and you could stand in line with other kids and there was no questions asked. And you also didn't have a teacher just spotting you in a crowd and calling you out. Yep. Trevor, you, you don't have any food. What's going on? You know, it was a group effort. We all get to go up as, as one and get that food. Yep. And that's what I love about uh, Bulls of Hope. It, there's no judgment. And I've always been a big fan of uniforms in schools for that very reason. That, you know, there's one kid with the brand new Nike shoes. And then there was me who, my mom went to the and the Armory's flea market and bought a pair of Nike runners and they were a size too small. But I wore them anyway because they were Nike runners. So I can remember wearing these shoes thinking, oh, I finally got these trendy shoes. And they were a size too small. I can remember going for probably eight months with my feet like that in my shoes. But because you wanted to be, you wanted to belong. And, and that wasn't part of your narrative, you know. You could just be one of the kids. And, and I think within five minutes, somebody had scuffed them all up because they looked new. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you were okay with it, right? Because, oh, he scuffed up my new Nike shoes. But I'm going way off subject. I'm just saying that to be able to belong, you get to take your mask off, right? Yeah. And that's what Bulls of Hope did. So, so many great causes like that. Just need a voice. Just need people like myself to stand up. And, and I think we have a ton of them in Chilliwack. You're one. And I look forward to seeing like I said, what you're going to do to be a voice to promote positive. So that's the goal. But I definitely know what that's like to show up unprepared because I uh, was in university and I thought I got a suit. I was all dressed up. But the hardest part was when my friend was like, you're wearing the wrong socks. I was wearing just normal low cut socks. I didn't know that there's a rule around socks and how they're supposed to go up your leg. I didn't realize. And so that day I thought I had was all together. And when he made that comment, I was devastated. Your walls crumbled down. It doesn't matter. You could have an Armani suit on. I never felt comfortable around rich people for most of my life. It took me till I was probably, honestly, I bet you I was 17, 18, probably. I, I never felt comfortable around rich people. I felt like they always had just something over me always. Right. And you're, you're born with that. You are. Um, it's something that you have to work through. It took me years to get over that. I, I, was intimidated, so intimidated by rich people that I, you, you just didn't think you had a chance. You know, I just think about it now, thinking back then, and 
my brother Sean, who I talked to about, about earlier in the show, he ended up marrying into a very wealthy family over in Victoria. Really well-known, well-to-do family. He was bulletproof. He's like, whatever, I'm going to show you. Hey, I, I don't care. I'm marrying your daughter. She loves me. He had that gusto, right? I didn't have that gusto. So when we would go over and visit them, we would go to the houses, the, you know, the, his now father-in-law, yeah. you know, of Uppity Uppington on, in Oak Bay, on Beach Avenue in Oak Bay, which was, you know, the most regal part of Victoria, British properties. And that was just normal for them. Normal to have Sophie Pemberton paintings and Emily Carr paintings and everything was prim and proper. And you drank from Royal Albert teacups and I wanted so badly just to fit in, to, to, so I grasped everything I could grab. I found out who Sophie Pemberton was, who Emily Carr was, how good, I sucked all that in, but your sock thing spoke to me, because all it takes is one thing yep. to break that very frail, fragile tower down, right? Yep. One mistake when you're speaking and they are ready to cut you down and make you feel that you're just that poor kid from Chilliwack yep. in one sentence. Yeah. Right. It's just, it's a funny, a very fragile uh, tower we built. Right. Yeah. But then you get older and you get a little stronger and you start feeling a little better about yourself. And if you've done right, you can take ownership in it. And then money means nothing. The person means everything. I think that that's one thing you emulate really well because you're able to network, I think, on a level that a lot of people aren't able to do. And so I'm curious as to how you approach that because it's not easy to put yourself out there or to have the conversation. And from earlier, it kind of sounds like you struggled a little bit with being an introvert at parties and stuff because that is kind of what I've seen from a few guests is you're able to do this big, loud um energy and then when it comes to being at a party where you're just another person now there's this pull towards the food let's go stand over here where it's comfortable and if people approach me it's because they're coming over here and I don't have to go and try and find them so what has it been like for you to network because you do have probably some of the strongest relationships um, like if you think of the top 10 most known people you probably have the strongest relationships with the other people among that list hmm. so so how can other people go about networking and building relationships kind of in the way that you have what have you gone about doing it well that's an excellent question and it's one word genuine just be genuine there's nothing beats an honest sell and nothing beats an uh nothing beats getting through the bullshit you know you just this is what i'm you know I, i'm coming to you i need this from you or i'm coming to you and i'm going to offer this to you take it from me because it's valuable Look me in the eyes and know that I'm giving you this as a gift. Or I'm going to take this from you and you're going to do some, you're going to do some good. I'm going to help you do some good. For a lot of businesses, for me, my sell is that I know you want to do good. I know you don't have the time or the facility to take it on yourself. So give me what you can and let me get it where it needs to be. For me, that was exactly that. It was that I don't have money to give you. What can I give you that's a resource that is valuable? And so, so I gave it myself. I gave my music. I gave my talent. Anything that I thought was valuable and that people would take as value, right? Yeah. We'll bid on that show. And, a, and an $800 show would go for $3,500. Yeah. And then at that $3,500 show, I mean, I, I'm just blown away. I think of uh, playing at Tom DeGroote's house one night for Bulls of Hope. And the show itself went for $3,500. Nothing out of the ordinary. Maybe I wore a dress shirt instead of a T-shirt. We raised $3,500 off the cuff. 
and then the beautiful people at the fundraiser at this barbecue did 50 50 draws all night um they ended up raising i think another 3500 just at the house party there's seven thousand dollars from just uh the gift of music because people just needed a conduit for which to give they don't want to go out and do the road work or they just don't have the time so here i'm going to do this for you in the end it gets to the right place gets to bowls of hope or gets to sally ann or gets to wherever i want to speak about one more thing that i didn't speak about with this with the missing guitar this is the most beautiful part i got choked up so i got um off my i thought in my guitar case that night i never take tips i've never taken tips in my life and i don't say don't take tips if you're a musician i just never felt comfortable again probably a pride thing i never ate at gigs and i never took tips uh because i didn't want your charity i guess i felt proud about it i mean i'm here playing i'm getting paid don't worry about it yeah buy yourself a beer when we had things like the forest fires in the interior and i found out that the horses were not getting uh, food uh they were missing some stuff just some weird stuff like that then the tip jar came into effect and then we could say okay so every tuesday at the lakeside beach club we would do a charity we'd give away look you can tip me tonight if you want to hear brown eyed girls 50 bucks because i hate that song you know we'd make fun of it but that night we made 450 bucks in tips just for people five dollars two dollars whatever little kids everybody so that went with a guitar case now that never came back to me but i'm telling you the next day elliot from from van dyke uh, uh cabinets like i'm thinking of people right away phoning me shane o'connor these are guys I haven't talked to in a year. Trev, how you doing? How much was in the case? Oh, dude, 400 change, man. Real drag. Come and see me today. Come see me later today. We gave Sally Ann, I'm not quite sure the number, but I think it's, I want to say 3,900 bucks. Wow. 2,900 or 3,900 bucks in the matter of, so, so from minute one, guitar gets taken to handing a check to Sally Ann to go help take care of the people with the forest fires. We went from zero and the most terrible thing ever to guitar back, community amazing, charity gets paid three or $4,000, which as you know, with a charity, cash is king, right? You could go give somebody, uh, you can give the Sally Ann a 12 pack of soup yeah. or a thing of noodles or six cans of spaghetti sauce. Yeah. But if you give them the money, they can double that. They can buy 12 cans of spaghetti sauce, 24 cans of soup. Yeah. It's worth double to them. Yeah. So cash is king with charities, with these nonprofits. Yeah. So imagine what three or four thousand dollars did. Yeah. And that was from four hundred. Yeah. That's that's community. What was it, what is it like to play a gig where you're doing it for the crowd and you're doing it maybe at Harrison Hot Springs or something like that versus doing it for a cause? Is there any difference in how the audience responds? Is there any difference in the energy that you felt? You know, the Harrison Hot Springs gig for me, so for those who don't know, uh, listening to this podcast, I took a brief detour from my rock and roll career to become a jazz guitar player singer at the Harrison Hotel with a group called the Jones Boys. They were a long-running group in the Copper Room, and maybe some are familiar, some aren't. It's not there anymore, sadly, but the idea for me was to reinvent myself and um, settle down a bit and get into, it was a regular gig five nights a week. Now the pros of it were I played five nights a week. I learned how to read jazz charts. I played with incredible musicians who you couldn't let down every night. It was not a one man show anymore. It was a full band and you were expected to come and deliver. You couldn't let them down. So I learned how to read jazz charts. 
it was at low volume, so I learned how to sing better. I learned control. But as part of that routine of every night, hearing the guy beside me say the same exact thing, like clockwork every night, 10 to 7, he would utter the same words, or 20 after 7, he'd play the same riff on his instrument. After three and a half years, I'm losing my mind. It sucked my soul right out of me and up to my drinking through the ceiling. That was the beginning of trouble for me. Yeah. I had control of it until I went to the copper room and then I was literally drinking to escape. I had a buddy of mine who drove me to work every day. I would drink every day to work. I would drink at work and I am embarrassed to say this, but I, you know, I'm okay to share it now, but uh, what a letdown to everybody. So the long-winded answer to your question is that ended up sucking my soul away. So they never got the best part of me. They might have for the first six months when I thought I could make a difference there and change the direction of the band. And, but it was three against one in that case where they were kind of set in their ways and, you, you know, as strong minded as I am. And so rather than fight it, I just chose to, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll deal with it and I'll do it. Yeah. And, uh, the beauty of me, thank goodness, in my brain and my stubbornness is that I called myself on it. Uh, I just said, you, you're done. My most important thing at the time was really community events. And they stifled me for three years in community events. I couldn't do Party in the Park. I missed two years of Party in the Park, which broke my heart. Um, and the manager at the, at the hotel at the time, wouldn't. he only gave me one Saturday off a year. Wow. Now... You can't do events like yeah. that. They could have used me at the hotel as a great ambassador and a great pillar for bringing people to the Harrison. And instead they chose to put, put this wet towel on it. Yeah. And here you're here now you work for us. This is your, this is what you do. Yeah. No, no letting the flower through cracks. Yeah. No letting that shine. And I don't want to make this sound like, Oh, what was me? Cause it was, I learned a lot. I, you know, I had a time there. I'm blessed for the time I spent. I met some great staff there, and I still have great friends from the hotel. So that's not my point. Um, I forgot my point. But the the playing for is, people, yes. right? Always play for your always. I don't care what it is for a gig. Always find a way to find your truth in a gig, and that that goes for rock and roll or working at a shop selling clothes or bringing people food. It is a job find the light in the job or get out get out that's fair and it does sound like you found your light with this new position where you get to bring all of your energy and all of your um, ambition and your voice to this new position and actually bring people together but you know what i'm blessed at with this new job is i have an incredibly supportive team around me with with uh brian coombs from sepco and and liana from the chamber and the great staff at sepco who welcomed me with open arms Nettie tam and Nettie tam has done my job before so she knows uh what it takes nobody put a wet cloth on me they said this is yours to lead i work with an incredibly cool board of uh, of on the bia of volunteers store owners merchants business owners downtown who have trusted me to at 53, take the lead. I couldn't have done this seven years ago. When, it was, when I was first interested in the job seven years ago, I was disappointed that they didn't look at me. Yeah. Now, seven years later, I realized why, and I never felt more ready to lead. And so I've been lucky that they've given me the ball for which to drop, right? right? That's awesome. And I won't drop. 
That's awesome. Can you share a little bit about your relationship with your wife and how that came about, how that <laughs> relationship started and what some of the things you guys have gone through together? Because I think a lot of our listeners, what I've noticed is they really enjoy the family aspect and the, the connection with another person because that is who you're kind of on this journey with. And with you sharing a story of your sobriety, hearing what that journey has been like with your wife would be, I think, really meaningful to people to understand how they might, sh they should be treating their significant others or what they could be doing better in their relationship. Well, look, okay, first of all, let's just preface everything I'm about to say by I am in no, no way the poster boy for what you're supposed to do in a relationship. So let's just start with that. Okay. I will say that, uh, my wife, my wife, Tracy, is uh, with or without me has always been an incredible shining light. Anybody who's met her or spent 10 minutes with her uh, gets sucked in by on the rainiest day. She is the sunshine. And I'm not just blowing smoke here. You really have you met my wife? Not yet. Well, no. wait till you meet my wife. You'll okay. know what I'm talking about. So she'll put a positive into anything, any situation. Uh, every day she wakes up legitimately uh, happy to go to work happy to put costumes on. My wife works for seniors. She's a lifestyle coordinator with uh, Chartwell Hampton House right across from the hospital. She's been there 16 years. Uh, got the job through Eldon Unger, who's a well-known Chilliwack guy for many years and, and saw this light in Tracy and thought this job would be perfect for her. And he was right. He, another example of someone who sees the light and 16 years later, she's still there making, making uh, seniors' lives better. I say this to everybody who listens. If a senior comes into that place and they're going to be five years left on this planet, she'll give them seven or eight or ten full-on, dignified, proud, happy, zestville years. Uh, there's no one like her, her place. There's no other uh, retirement community like Hampton House because of her. So she would have been okay on her own. How did I affect her? She put up with me for a long time, all, all the stuff that she's had to put up with. And there's been a lot. Um, she is just always, uh, she wasn't dealt the best hand either as a kid, you know. Um, but she had a family who, who, a mother who was just amazing, who I've adopted as my own mom. So that's been a blessing. With Tracy came her incredible family, right? And the biggest gift of all with Tracy came her daughter, Chloe. And that was the greatest gift of all, that I have in some way been able to have a daughter. And, you know, I would have been a good dad. I know that. I love kids. Love them. Um, so Chloe's been, since she was 12 or 13 to now, I've got to share her. What do you do to make yourself better? And in turn, the couple is better, yeah. right? You owe it to yourself to, uh, just like you take your car into the shop, you owe it to yourself to at some point in your life, look in the mirror and say, dude, or do that. <laughs> you know, how you doing? And have you let people down lately? Do you, do you owe something to somebody that you could, you could make better by, you know, repairing a bit of your own yep, stuff? That's, that's what I wish was done more when it comes to New Year's resolutions, because that is the idea behind it, is you're supposed to look at yourself in the mirror and say, how could I do better next year? And doing diets or whatever, I'm going to start doing Pilates more. Well, whatever, or whatever it takes. Yeah. I mean, if it's in a physical sense like that, if that's all it, if that's what it isn't great, I'm not that disciplined. I've never been that guy. Clearly, I've never, 
I think I've walked by a gym a few times. I, I understand the concept, but uh, I have a metabolism rate of a young puppy dog. So, uh, you know, weight has never been a problem for me, but I don't follow a diet regime. I'm terrible with habits. I am incredibly addictive personality, incredible addictive personality. There are some things in my life that I'm grateful. I can, I can say, for example, never touched hard drugs. Even in all my life in the nightclubs, never once did cocaine, never, never dabbled in it. Um, I was fortunate because if I would have, this would be a different podcast yeah. if I was even here. So incredibly addictive personality. Um, what was what? What about that allowed you to be that strong? Because peer pressure is real, and the environment you were in obviously facilitates that type of behavior. Same thing that got me through watching my brothers and my my family. Some of them didn't do uh, uh, the best. They they suffered through terrible life stories, yeah. and I got to learn from their pain. I got to be better because of that. I got to watch mentors that I really looked up to when I was young. Guys that really, I was like, oh, if I could just be as cool as you. And then I would say, man, that guy just fell apart. That guy's dead. That guy's dead. That guy's dead. That guy was going to be a pro baseball player. What happened to him? All these guys that I watched and really looked up to. You could join that brigade or you can go, no way, man. No, I'm good. I'm good, man. And I, so I, Watching their failure was uh, a weird mentorship for me. That's how I feel. I look at my indigenous communities and they really struggle with alcoholism. And I was afraid of alcohol all the way up until I was like 17, 18, like deathly afraid of like, I can't touch this because I know people who are addicted to it and I know what that looks like. And I'm, I'm afraid of becoming that. And so it, it was unhealthy at a point where I was too afraid, where I was like, I can't be near these people. I don't trust these people. And then now I think I have a more, a more well-rounded viewpoint of it. But it was fear because I didn't want to, I knew people had invested time and energy into me. And for me to go down that path, like I still remember, like I had a knife held at me um, by a bully that kept bullying me in downtown. And he very much had this personality and I felt pushed to go down this route of like, he cornered me one time with a weapon and was like, swear and like use profanity and do that. And I fought it for as long as I could, but then I ended up folding and being like, Hey, if you'll go away, I'll swear. And then he left, he left because of that, but that proved to him that he could influence me. And so that, that gave me a lot of fear towards what am I capable of doing when put under pressure? Uh, nine. How old was your bully? Uh, 15. So, you know, now as you're a 23 year old guy and as you become 53, I hope, I, I pray, you, you'll know, you'll see that bully again and you'll, and you'll get his whole life story. You probably already got it because you're a wise guy, but you see why he was who he was at 15 yep. and why he needed to do that to you yep. and what probably a hundred times over happened to him right in his own house yep. or his brother did it or, or, he, or someone just a bit above him did that to him. And it's that cyclical chain of, I mean, I have bullies in my life that I know by name that I, I talk to now. They're buddies of mine. Yeah. But I know, you know, if I ever called them on it, I, I would never because I'm good with it. Yeah. And I would never want to inflict that on them. But, um, you know, you never forget, right? You never forget those times. And you talked about it and your whole body language changed when you were talking to me about it. Yeah. You know, um, 
you, you'll be 50 and you'll still have the same body language because it was that traumatic. Yep. I can remember kind of, uh, you know, and not, not, I mean, you speak of like uh, the, the frailties within the indigenous communities. I'm talking about me being just poor welfare family who grew up post-war. My mom was born in 1926. She was a good solid drinker by the time she was 12, 13, 14, right? She went through the, the through the war time. Then you have all these guys coming back from war with PTSD before there was a label for it. Yeah. Just drinking, that's what you did. You smoked and you drank and you forgot and you rebuilt. But you, you know, they didn't diagnose PTSD. You just imagine the atrocities, right? So that's generations now of, and my mom was bulletproof. The stories I hear, she was bulletproof as a drinker. She could out drink every guy at a table, yeah. right? My family Christmas parties would, would be beautiful family get-togethers until 1130 at night when the Beausejour was done, when the third bottle of the, you know, $10 Beausejour, the family Christmas wine yeah. had reached its peak. And the, the Seagram's bottles were, you know, you had enough stars from the empty Seagram's bottles to put around your mirror. And then the family fights, and all those old wounds would come up. And so I can remember being a kid. And again, I don't want, this isn't a feel sorry for me. It's just the truth. What I remember is I can remember going to bed and opening a window in the wintertime because there was so much smoke in the house from cigarettes that when you closed your eyes, your eyes would burn. And so you open the window to get fresh air in the bedroom and, and you would go to sleep to that very familiar fighting in your family. And, and you're half asleep, half awake, and you're anxious because is this going to end terribly? You know, I, I, I have memories of beer bottles hitting TV sets and of, of uh, you know, of, of family fights and in squabbling. And, and, you know, I didn't really know my real dad, right? Uh, he left when I was very young. So I, to me, I never had a relationship. So when he passed away, it meant nothing to me. But my mom had a boyfriend who was pretty solid through my growing up. But they would drink. My mom would antagonize. She was a strong woman. She'd press buttons. I would hear them start to fight. So by the time I was 13, 14, I was an expert at conflict assessment. I knew it was coming, and I'm sure you can relate. Yep. You see it, and you, you see it in a room across a room. Yep. You're, you're, now you and I are talking, and it's happening over there. You're like this. Uh -huh. yep. So always finding a and corner And you're ready seat. to go put out that fire because that – that's in you. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, at a subway in downtown, uh, the one where Bill used to have the town butcher, yeah. and uh, it was being robbed. Ground zero. Yeah. And I, it was being robbed. And I was uh, shocked that this person walked up, started yelling at the teller there. And I visited subway all the time. That was like my safe place. Me and Jacob Coet would go there and hang out for hours read the newspaper, catch up on current events, try and fight for the save, uh, save the Paramount, do those types of things. And this person came in, um, stole she money. You would have been like 15. Yes. Uh, and, and you were Save the Paramount. Yep. Wow, good for you. And so wow. um, from that, the guy steals and I chase him out the door. And I would still do that today. He goes around the corner. He turns around. I didn't know if he had a gun or not, but he turned around and he tried to point something at me. And I was terrified, but I was like, this is... This is my home. This is my community. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to scare you out of here so you know not to come back and do it here again because I'll be here. And so I had the police officers kind of tease like, oh, you didn't need to do that. Like probably not safe yeah. for you. And it's like, I don't, this is my home. This is where I come every single day. So this is, I'll defend this. Do you know the phrase fight or flee? 
Yeah. Anxiety. Everybody would know from anxiety, fight or flee, right? Yeah. So in a lot of cases, what they forget to tell you with that whole fight or flee is that you have no choice but to fight. Yeah. You're, there's not an option to flee. Yeah. So you get trained to fight. Yeah. You don't leave a situation like that. You don't run. Yeah. You, you're just born to be that person, right? Because you have to be. Because fleeing is not an option. You're leaving loved ones um, in, a, in an unsafe place yeah. or whatever the situation is. That speaks to you yeah. 100%. Well, and that's where I get a little bit concerned because we can call Harry Potter, uh, the Lord of the Rings, the Avengers movies. We can call those just silly movies that are about something fun. But for me, growing up, I didn't have a dad and I didn't have a strong understanding of what to do in those situations. So when I looked at people like Peter Parker, the character, and he stood up. He failed to stand up in the first movie with the Tobey Maguire. He failed to stand up to the person who was stealing. It wasn't his money. It wasn't his problem. But he still paid a consequence for that. His uncle died because of that. And so that story was super real to me in that moment because it's like, what am I supposed to do? Am I going to just let this guy get away with this? They ended up catching that guy and I had to go to court and testify for the next couple of years because of that event, because I played a role in getting that guy off the streets. He had robbed like eight subways prior to that. And I got to p help put an end to that. Now, maybe not forever, but he now knows that just because there's a 13 year old in the store doesn't mean he gets to get away with it. I pray for you that as you move through the court system and in, in your law career and, and, I pray that you don't get jaded by this, by, and we're going off my subject now onto you. I'm going to interview you for a sec, but I pray that you don't get lost in the process, in, in, in the wheels and just get so, so tired of, of, you know, seeing the end the way you want to see it, but the system, you can't get off that wheel. Yep. And I hope that guys like you at your age, uh, that there's a mass of you that, that can really make change and 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 be on the right side of of stopping that wheel one of my saying yeah one of my biggest frustrations is i can't have crown on here um because crown council i got to work very closely with and talk about people with hearts in the right place and mindsets in the right point of view to get things done because these people would come to me and they viewed me as their greatest resource a native court worker to me when I started the position I was like these people are going to push me to the side they're going to schedule meetings two months later yeah. when they have the time but these people were like where's Aaron we need Aaron in here where's why don't we have Aaron in this room because I'm the guy who knows what the resources are I'm the person getting these people set up with counseling I'm the one following up with their counselors to get the letter saying they've attended 10 successful sessions and that's what Crown wanted to see more than anything else that I could provide was just evidence that these people were putting their best. Let me forward. ask you a question. How did the people that went through the 10 consecutive courses, how did they see you? They looked at me really positively really? because, because so I was able to share. Because you were genuine. And because I think for because I was a native court worker working with indigenous people, I would have the judge say things like, hey, look at Mr. Pete here. He's here. You can be more like Mr. Pete. You but can you have... weren't entitled. No. You weren't entitled no. indigenous. You weren't in there. And, you know, let's face it. I mean, you, you, I don't care where you came from. If you're poor, you're poor. Yep. And, and if you've seen stuff, you've seen stuff. Yep. And when you, when you give that to people, they know. That's my biggest fear around getting too focused on one community. Like I love 
718.2e of the criminal code because it says with a special understanding of indigenous people when it comes to sentencing we look at people's story what they've been through with a special consideration of indigenous issues with my issue with Galadu, uh it was a case that was decided that basically said we have to look at indigenous issues and what they've been through is it narrows the scope and now we have these things called Galadu reports they're only for indigenous people and my fear with that is that anybody in the bottom 10 percent needs a leg up they need resources they need to be heard they need to share their story they need counseling it doesn't matter their ethnicity yes i agree indian residential schools are horrible 60 scoop are horrible but so was living through world war ii so was a lot of horrible genocides that have occurred around the world and like the black community is a good example of a community that can't get gladu reports despite the fact that they clearly have struggled and same with my friend jake who is of white skin but has indigenous background you can't say that based on skin color we know what to do and that's where i get hesitant on focusing too much on just one ethnicity is because i think it's important like you said anybody who's in poverty needs help needs resources needs understanding but it but i and i respect you said that and then i push you right back and say uh your community needs you more than ever absolutely but, but you know honestly you know aaron it, it, it i mean you should just be very proud of who you are like you should be really proud right now of of being well spoken of being respectful the one thing that i watched in your podcasts uh, with with you know with the last few that i've watched and actually more listened to um you you're very respectful of the process you're very respectful of the people that you talk to you you have put in the time to respect the time they've put in. And that's important. That's the most important thing, not just as this podcast, but as a human being, to really listen and to really um, give the space to receive, right? And then to not necessarily have an answer or an offer. My One of my biggest flaws is I always feel like I, I have to have an answer for, for every, everything. I always have to have an answer. It's gotta be a fix. And you, know, you, you don't have to have the answer. You just have to have the ear sometimes, right? And I, with this latest situation, I feel so, so frustrated with, with what's going on in Kamloops because I, I don't have an answer. It's not my right to even have a, an answer or, or even a, a, not my, this is not my place to mourn, but yet I still mourn and I still feel, I mean, I've always had a great respect uh, for an indigenous community. I always, there's not an event that I would put on without having uh, uh, Ernie or, or Eddie or somebody there to bless the ceremony. Always, Party at Parks always started out with a dance and a welcome drum. Canada Day, always. Uh, you know, I've been blessed to have great Indigenous friends of mine who have always had, a, honestly, like a way better sense of family than I've ever seen anywhere. Yeah. Family is everything. Yeah. And I was blessed to go to... Uh, 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 Rose Kelly's funeral ceremony in, in Fort Langley there. Um, and what a beautiful moving. I said to my friend, Dave, do you know David Kelly? Do you know Dave Kelly? Uh, from the cultist Lake uh, Kelly's. Um, I said, Dave, I'll tell you what, when I pass away, will you please make sure that, you know, you, you somehow get me this ceremony, make this happen for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, uh, you can't, but please try and make it happen. It was literally the most beautiful, um, farewell and tribute to a human being I've ever seen. So, um, we're so blessed to have, to be able to, if you want to experience it, it's right here. Yeah. We're so blessed, man. We're blessed to be sitting here right now. And well, I tell you, 
I got to say, I was a little bit, uh, when, when I had to walk three miles to get to your interview site, now I get why you did it. It, uh, it's magical, man. Well, and I, I feel like the other thing that a lot of people can learn from indigenous culture is looking to their elders, because as I said earlier, I think that that's something that's kind of missing from our society. We're losing so many people who've seen the Great Recession, World War II. We're losing these people who can give us an understanding of what hell actually looks like, what having literally no access to any food whatsoever is actually like. And for indigenous people, we always, I've seen people who have been homeless for a very long time still look at their elders and say, yes, like I, I understand. And it's like, wow, this is, this transcends your circumstance. You're not like, well, I'm broke, so I'm going to not care what people think anymore. They still have that. And that's where they might not respect anything around exactly. them except that, yeah. because that is in the blood. Yeah. And that's what I've seen over and over again. Yeah. And that's what I, I truly love. And uh, we should be so lucky looking from the outside to have something even remotely close to that. Yeah. Because that's something you can never take away is that, that blood bond. When you see what happened in Ontario with the, the care homes and how people were treated and how it was handled. And it's like, this is not how we should be treating people who fought and died for our country in a lot of circumstances. Well, this goes back to, again, you know, when I woke up Remembrance Day and slept through the ceremony, yeah. there was nothing that anybody ever could have said to me my disappointment in the 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 great realm of disappointment for me was that where and a lot that of people say oh dude what, you know what are you talking about but it was so you know yeah where does that come from for you where did that start from where you had that respect because i really struggled during the first like i don't know 12 years of my life to understand um people would be like they died for our country and it's like yeah well this is our country now so what's the problem and like i had a disrespect growing up with Remembrance Day and understanding why. So where did that come from for you? I just think to me, it's just it's really a really great chance to honor some really courageous people. These, these were kids, man. These were, these were kids. I mean, we could look, we could do a whole podcast just on, on, on military service, but I want to talk about service above self. Yeah. Uh, these are people and, and most not by choice uh, were drafted, you know, um, literally fighting for your life. I think of World War One. I'm a history nerd, a total history nerd. So, you know, I go back a ways. I'm, I'm an avid lover of a documentary, and I'm an avid lover of anything history. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a warplane freak and geek, and I can tell you, I can talk about wars till the end of time. But the sacrifices made for me, it is the very least that I can do to show up on that one day that, in the very furthest way. I can pay a small respect. It means the world to me. And I know that to those old veterans that are still there, just hanging on, like the, the Harold Thorpes who lives in my, in my wife's, he's 94, was in Africa fighting. Um, I know that he loves every minute of somebody paying respect. Yeah. It has to be there, it has to. And those stories need to be told. And I'm wondering now, going back to you again, are you, have you been interviewing any of your elders? Or are you going to do that as a series? Or? That is part of the plan, yes. Good. I'm working on having multiple different indigenous. I've You'd had, be a great. Yeah, I've had uh, David Jimmy on, but I do have a whole list of people I'd like to have on in that area. <laughs> I, lo I love you. Look at Dave like an elder. <laughs> he's he's a, an amazing man, which also, again, speaks to the future, by the way. With, with Dave Jimmy and, and Chief Derek Epp. And yes. those are two that I've had the pleasure to spend some time with. And boy, again, what a, what a good time to be um, 
to be up to be to have those relations with those beautiful people and they're powerful and smart and and friendly and and open yeah. you know it's just again it speaks to the time we're in here in Chilliwack you know we you know we can keep coming back to say what you want about our little community but boy I tell you so many good things going for it with the people the rebar in the ground the yeah. people that not just that have been here a long time but that have moved here and that are making a difference immediately um yeah we're we're pretty blessed here man yeah i can't can't disagree with you i feel very lucky to be able to have people like yourself on to share your story and i do view it as a responsibility that i try and make sure that i that i ask the right questions and approach it in the right way because this is your time and this is your story and there may not be an autobiography written about you one day so this is my opportunity to share the story in the best way that i can think to do it yeah and there's no jimmy patterson in my future there's no there's no Jimmy book. I won't be a billionaire. Okay, well, let's answer that question though. What was it like to meet a to billionaire? Be a billionaire? To meet a billionaire. Who, <laughs> Jimmy Madison? Yeah. Oh, well, let me tell you what. Funny about that, Jim Patterson is a guy that I have looked up to since I was a kid. I just, I, and, and you know, I was a nerd about these business guys that have done so well. And a lot of people say what you want to say about Jim Patterson, but you can't, you can't knock Jim Patterson for is business documented. So when I found out that there was a chance, and big thanks again to Kevin Gemmel for the drive because Jimmy bought our radio station. So in comes Jim Patterson. Now the fun story was the night before when all the big wigs were flying in from all over and they were doing their, their meetings, Jimmy drove out here in his truck. He's, I think he's 90, 90, 92. I don't, I'm gonna blow his age. I'm thinking 92. There he is in his pickup truck driving from Vancouver to Chilliwack. Checks himself into the hotel. He's eating dinner in the hotel. And all the, I knew the front desk girl at the time. She said it was so funny because all these suits come out of the, out of the, out of the, out of the elevator and they're leaving to go to a restaurant. And she says, um, I, think you're, I think your boss is in the dining room. And they're like, oh, what? No, that can't be right. No, who? Jim? Yeah, he's in, the, he's in the dining room. So they go in there and he's half an hour ahead of them, ready to talk business. He had driven out in his truck like... That's a killer story for me to set it up. So when I heard that story, I wasn't intimidated meeting him the next day. He literally was just like meeting your neighbor who was going to ask you about the, the, the flower food you're using for your flowers. Yeah. Like he was literally that down to earth. And he's a great man because he wanted to hear your story. He wanted to, he wanted to get, he knew that you valued I don't even know how to explain it. I think that he's just so good with people being starstruck around him a bit. So he just took it in. He gave, he threw the question out to me and let me talk and didn't interrupt and just took it in. And I knew I was only going to get a few minutes with him and he let me have those few minutes. But the fun part for me was talking to our former premier, Glenn Clark, who works, he's Jimmy's second in command there. And Glenn was a pleasure to talk to because I got to tell Glenn about my business model for the radio show which is how we worked out this business model about how I get paid for my advertisers. And, and he was just so interested and so over the moon, like, I, like, like genuinely interested. And he's like, can, you, can, you, can we go talk about this? Can we? And then someone pulled him away, of course. So that was my great opportunity to talk with Glenn Clark and I got, I got pulled away from, from Glenn. But yeah. but yeah, so meeting Jimmy Patterson was a really, a really great pleasure. But I've, met, I've had the pleasure of meeting so many really, um, Pretty cool people, uh, and you know, in the end, they're just people, right? Yep. I've been starstruck by 
people. But Jim, Jimmy was just a pleasure and didn't make it feel, you would never know in a million years. And you know, frankly, I didn't care anyway. Yeah. If I was 17 meeting him, I would have lost it. I wouldn't, I probably would have canceled meeting him. Yeah. Because it would have been so intimidating. That's how I felt. I don't know if you know Alex Marks. Yes, I love Alex. Yeah, he's another person. You would never know that he owns this hotel, that he's owned part of the block and worked hard. And he just dresses like a like a workshop person. Like well, he is a workshop person. Yeah. And, and for those who don't know Alex, he's such a community pillar. And again, another guy who lets guys like me shine. And he goes in the background and does these amazing... I could name 10 people right now, but I won't because they would be mad at me for saying their names. Yeah. Alex would probably be mad at you for saying his name. You know, but these are the guys that just keep Chilliwack going. They donate without... They, they donate with anonymity. They uh, keep our city um, with, the, with the programs and stuff. They... The money just ends up getting there somehow, yeah. right? I could tell you a great story. I'm not going to mention a name, but I will say that every Christmas, their family doesn't do presents. They do donations to Bowls of Hope yeah. every Christmas for as long as I can remember hearing the story. I'd never say their name because I, I don't want to do that, but I will say that's just one example of the beautiful people in Chilliwack. And uh, again, I go back to it again. I just... I'm never going to leave here. I feel, I shouldn't say never, but I could have left a long time ago. And I just knew a lot of my friends said, why didn't you go? You could have gone away. A lot of my friends left and came back. They, you know, they had their babies here. They've done what they've done. I knew that if I stayed here and I knew that if I kept building connections, that it would pay off in the end with a good life here. And it's been, it's been pretty awesome. I feel the same way. When I was going to uh, Catholic school, one of the people there, Sandra, they they ended up giving me and my mom two hundred dollars just as a check, just as a hey, we know we kind of know things aren't probably great in the financial department, so here's two hundred dollars. And my mom split that with me, and I was ten, eleven. But she was like, when people give me something, it's not mine; it's ours. So because... I'm sorry, is your mom still alive? Yes. Okay, I w- yeah. I would like to meet your mom. Yeah, I'm I feel sure. like I might know her, Linda Pete. If you, I'm sure that I, I she's downtown. All the time. So, just from what you've you know. said, I, 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 feel like I, I, feel like I should know her. Yeah. How old would she be? Uh, she's just turned uh, forty-five or 46. okay. So she's yeah. like she would be like uh, just a younger girl to me. Yep. Which is, I bet you, I know her though. Yeah. And what a good kid she's made, man. What a, she. I mean, I, I just hope. I mean, I know she's proud of you, but yeah. she should be really proud of you, buddy. I mean, she is. Um, you, 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 you would be a great flag to wave if I was your mom. I'd be pretty proud of you, buddy. She is, yes, definitely. Yeah. I'm very happy to be able to to give back to her because now seeing it through this lens of like, wow, you didn't have that much to start with, and you managed to get me here, and the fact that we attended family place and relied on that a lot. But she was there taking parenting courses when I saw other kids' parents drinking all night long and and ignoring their kids and saying here's five dollars for lunch bye where my mom she would show up at my school she did the cupcake sales she did the donation she attended every field trip i went on growing up she gave everything that she could to try and make sure sounds like you've been blessed i have been you haven't been blessed financially but you it you've been blessed in so many other ways that you were far from a poor kid. Yep. And I say that about, you know, everything that we've talked about today, I, I have to say firmly, my life was not terrible growing up. My mother loved me as best as she could love me. Yep. Uh, yes, she didn't come to my 
uh, Christmas concerts, but she taught me the value of real estate. She uh, was uh, book smart, not life smart. She didn't travel to Amsterdam, but she read about it so that when she went into a conversation with somebody, they felt like she had been there. Yeah. Um, she was very book smart. She read almost a book a night. Yeah. Like there was, there was really wonderful, power things, powerful things about my mom. In the end, I was too young and I was suffering incredible anxiety. I went through uh, to the point of almost suicide when I was uh, just coming out of the nightclubs uh, when I was about 20, 24. I had anxiety to the point where I was really considering suicide. Like, have you had panic attacks? You No. So when they're at, when they're at their worst, you're, you're literally your life, you wake up in the morning and it's okay for about 10 seconds. And then this tunnel vision goes like this literally with every passing minute and you and I would be talking and I could hear a conversation 80 feet away I couldn't couldn't concentrate the voices the and it was all due to lack of diet lack of exercise lack of sleep I was running a nightclub I was behind a desk most days and I was drinking a lot as a young guy so these anxiety attacks so I would go to my mother, I would drive to Nanaimo to get away from the nightclub and I'd go to my mom and this was in her final days. She was so full of anxiety herself that the little bit of energy that I had left that got me there and I just needed a refuel, she would take it. Instead of giving something, she would, she would be this black energy that would take that last nodule. And I would plan to go visit her for a week and I would stay for a night and then I'd make up some excuse. I, I had to drive and every mile I would drive away. And it sounds terrible to say this now when I think about it, but it's the truth. Every mile I would drive away from, from Nanaimo towards Victoria, I felt like I could breathe a little bit more. I could, I could get a breath because I just didn't have now as I'm older, I, uh, I'm older now. And once I got over my own anxiety and learned to understand it, I wish I could have taken my mom and, 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 and saved her. And it was too late. She was gone by then. Yeah. You know, so, so she was, she did the best she could, but she had demons. Right. Yeah. And we didn't get diagnosed back then. Nobody got diagnosed with anxiety. And I thought I was going crazy. I thought I was literally losing my mind. And it was a girl that I dated from out of town who said, you just, you're just getting panic attacks, man. Have you never, you know? And I'm like, what? I'm just a guy from Chilliwack who never traveled. There was no infomercials on anxiety. Yeah. You just, I thought I was losing my mind. Yeah. This girl came from out of town. She said, buddy, come jogging with me. Eat a sandwich. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, get, you know, be, be legitimately tired, not, you know, and she, she saved my life. Yeah. She literally saved my life through, cause I was, I was done. Yeah, I definitely had a turning around point. Um, my grandmother, so my mom was um, brought to Kokolita Hospital, um, which was an indigenous hospital yeah, for indigenous people. Yeah. And so um, the, the nurse working there was actually my grandmother, Dorothy Kennett. And so she was taking care of my mom. She saw that she needed a lot of care. Uh, she had problems with her eardrums. She was malnourished. There was a lot of health issues. And so she ended up... This is your mom's mom? Not by blood. Okay. And so Dorothy Kennedy is not my biological okay. grandmother. She's just this role model. You adopted her. Uh, she adopted my mother. Okay. And then um, brought my mom home, raised her all the wow. way up. 
And so that's why my mom has a different footing. And then seeing what she did, and she recently just this year passed away, and not being able to say goodbye to her properly because of COVID, but also just looking at the dent, she like, I wouldn't be here, like I 100% wouldn't be here if she didn't take in my mother. And so seeing this intergenerational effect of like a cure to the intergenerational trauma and feeling that and feeling whole, like as much as I don't have a dad, I don't know who he is. I've had the opportunity for like the community to be like my father, to for her role to act as that father figure because I've always been supported. And that's what Chilliwack has been to me is having all these people support me, not just one person, one male saying, this is what you do, this is what you don't do, but a community surrounding my mom and saying, you're, do, you're on the right path, you're trying your best. So we're just gonna do these small things, these small acts to help you do better. And feeling that every single day and getting to see Ron Laser and being like, wow, this is the role you played. And as, as you said, he, when I said it to him, when I tried to explain, this is the role you played, it's hard for them to, oh yeah, that's, I just do that well, for Well, we deflect. People. When people say stuff like that to me, when they're really generous, I'm a deflector, as most people are. Yeah. You, don't, you, don't, you don't do it to hear it. And you don't know what to do with it right. when you receive it. Right. You don't know what the right answer I, is. I don't, yeah. no. And I can, so I see why Ram was. Yeah, and so, but feeling that community has, what's led to this is because it's like, I think that this is more likely to reach my indigenous community because they don't they don't read as much as other communities do. And so I believe a podcast is one of the ways to get your story to the communities that could actually benefit from the story, from hearing what you went through and hearing what other people went through because we are an oral tradition. So why not take advantage of the fact that podcasts are orally done and through spoken word, that makes it more accessible. I did, for law school, I did research on freedom of speech and what that actually means. And one of the tools of speech is the ability to communicate your thoughts in a clear way. And that's where I think social media does us a disservice is because it, it doesn't, it confuses truth and popularity. It's a lot of white noise. Yeah. And so this ability Literally. to have a long conversation and have someone share a story and give that to the to my community and try and bring this back to the people who could actually go, you know what, I was struggling with that. And that re- I really resonate with that. So yeah, you know what, I'll, I want to hear what he says next. I want to be able to offer that to people in a way that they can consume. But I should be interviewing you. I know you should really do it bigger than me where somebody interviews you. Here's why I think that. You're a powerful example of the, the flower in the grass that can, that can come from all of that terrible past, that even though you're, you're literally two generations from that, that, that there's still that pillar of, I, I, I'm still here, yeah. and I'm still going to be positive, and I'm still going to do everything I can to make a difference, yeah. and I'm going to bring everybody up around me that I can until I run out of strength. Yeah. And then I'll just find more strength and do it again. Yep. But your story needs to be told. In a time when a lot of people are mourning right now, and I'm seeing a lot of stories, and I'm really trying to do as much research as I can right now, yeah. I did a lot of this reading a long time ago when it was reading. Yep. Now I'm trying to find all these documentaries, as many as I can, to, to really educate myself on, on what's going on and what's happened and, and remember and, and, and you know just try to be a better person in that respect to be respectful of, of what's around me so I don't misinterpret it or I don't cause pain by anything I do. Um, my heart's in the right place. But with you, I think I, someone should interview you and say, listen, this is a, a, a shining example of someone who has knowledge of their past, who is grateful for the fact and who is appreciative of the fact that 
you might not be here had had something the slightest thing yeah. the slightest limb in the tree broke yeah. you we wouldn't be having this conversation yeah. so you need i think you need to speak as a voice even at 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 your age you need to be a beacon of hope i think that you'll inspire as much as and i appreciate what you're saying that our conversation might what i say might inspire somebody what you say has so much more meaning in your community because it's tangible it's real yeah. and it's you're living proof yeah. that things can get better yeah. if you grab the ball that is what my hope is and that's part of the motivation of going to law school and trying to complete that is because i'm the first of my community to attend law school and that's a big accomplishment for the 600 members and knowing that i can go back there and um, i'm working with alpine legal services and chanel prasad who's running that works out of the co-work space he's like i don't need the big fancy office i don't need a name on a wall i'm here to do good work for the community and it's such a pleasure to be able to work with him because he's teaching me wills and estates business law um and real estate law which can help the community because we don't have these types of things i really want to do a mini series on how to start a business with nina zektis who runs luna float with tim mcalpine who runs co-work and um other people like chanel prasad who's a lawyer who also is an accountant like he has this this background and this ability to offer knowledge and that's where i really think i can bring value is by bringing together a story and then bringing it to the indigenous community and like hey this is five episodes with great people with amazing stories some of them are indigenous and you can learn how to start a business and you don't have to go talk to anyone cuz that's that's my main frustration with the reserve system is that they go and live on their property by themselves and they don't get access to the knowledge of lawyers judges um accountants um business owners they don't get that and so they they can't get themselves to an economically comfortable position if they're rural if they're out in the middle of nowhere where i see what dave jimmy's doing with his community and i see what derek apps doing with his community and i love it but i need to find a way to get that out to chawathal on low heat highway right. out in the middle of nowhere where there isn't going to be businesses where they'll have to do something in hope or something in chilliwack or something in agassiz and being able to bring them that knowledge so is that is that uh, i'm and forgive my ignorance but is that not are they not reaching out in that respect are they not like, are, are they not, is, are those services not available? I think of uh, Rocio, who I've had the pleasure of meeting through my job with the BIA, Rocio with the Stolar Community Futures. And, and um, like, she's an amazing lady just in the short time that I've got to know her. Like, the resources are there, it seems like. Yeah. Like, I read the newsletters, like, there's lots of resources if you want to take them. Like, like I go back to what your mom, you know, you said that yeah. all those resources were there. Your mom chose to take them yeah. and use them, yeah. right? You can't, you know, the old, you can lead a horse to water, right? Yeah. So your mom was, was one of those, wanted, wanted to use those resources. Yeah, but it's hard when you're on reserve. A lot of indigenous people don't have licenses, so they drive while prohibited. And I can say that without coming across the wrong way, because right. I helped them through the court process. I saw tons of driving while prohibited, driving without a license. And so that's commonplace. So they're not driving down to Stolo or contacting them with their idea. It's usually something like if you have an idea that's kind of out there, you're usually like, Huh, like who do I talk to? And if your whole, all your friends don't know what to do, you're not going to have the con con confidence to call and take the risk. And that's why I hope that through these small dialogues, people can consider, hey, you know what? Maybe I can, maybe I should. And being able to, like, I would love to partner with a credit union one day and bring financial literacy to rural communities and be the person the spokesperson for those ideas to explain what is an investment what is an investment in real estate what is an investment in the stock market what is a tfsa just the basics not how do you take full advantage of it but just 
teaching them the basics so that they can get themselves out because my big fear right now is from my understanding of my taxation course, when you spend a lot of money, which our government has done at unprecedented rates, you cause hyperinflation. Hyperinflation doesn't harm people who know how to invest. It harms people who are on fixed incomes. Who are people on fixed incomes? People in indigenous communities, people in poverty, people like myself who started from this position. And so these people aren't aware of what's going on and what the consequences of all this spending is for them and for their ability to survive in the next 25 years. And so I'd like to teach financial literacy to prepare them for what I hope never happens. I hope we don't go through... Well, you say financial literacy. I would love every kid to have financial, uh, you know, look again. Uh, coming from a welfare family, there was no you didn't you didn't learn how to budget. Yep. You waited for the check at the end of the month. You went to Mr. Mike's if you were lucky, or if your mom was lucky enough to hit a bingo win, upon a bonanza at bingo. It was like, oh, there's an extra cash that we didn't expect. My mom became the expert of borrow till you the next check comes, and then you pay back that, and it was a constant borrow. Yep. The one thing she did smart was buy real estate. And so real estate kept going up. So she kept, she always, if she sold, she had that, yep. that money. But I would have loved a course in school that would have taught me how to balance a checkbook. I didn't need algebra. I didn't need the sciences. There's, you know, to be able to nail somebody at a certain age and say, okay, this guy clearly is not going to UBC to be an engineer. What can we give him? Give him a set of life tools. Yeah. If I would have known what a proper credit card was when I graduated high school, I would have never gone to buy my Woolworths, get my Woolworths card at 28% and jack that up at 18 years old. Yeah. At Woolworths, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, this is, it seems to be free money. Oops, interest rate. Oops, credit rating, right? Yep. All that stuff you need to know. So that's just, again, not just speaking to the indigenous community, but to everyone. That financial knowledge is, is gold. Yep. And it should be for everyone. And, but that's one of the issues too, is if you're on reserve, your land isn't worth anything because you can't really sell it. And so you're in a circumstance where they don't get to play the real estate right. game. They only get houses if the government funds them to build houses and then the rents are super low, so it's hard to maintain, which is why indigenous communities get a bad rap for having poorly maintained You know housing. you can't leave here, right? You know we need you here. Yeah, I'm okay, here to so, stay. So I'm gonna just keep you in a little box, a little community box. Yeah. I've already got your future mapped out for you. You're going to do a little bit of time. You're going to probably become the president of the chamber. Probably do a little bit of time. I'd like, then I'd like to maybe see a city council run for you. Maybe one, maybe two terms city council really makes some moves. And then mayor. Yeah. And then maybe like a nice MLA position, Victoria, where you can keep a good eye on us here. And yeah. yeah so I got your map though. You'll okay. be just, you'll be fine. I don't, I don't think I have a career in politics. I'm too brutally honest about the things I see and it's hard to, I I'm don't. I'm hoping enjoy. by the time you're making ready to make that move that it's accepted to be just honest, honest and open yeah. and real. Yeah. I think it's getting there now. We've got some great politicians here in town. I agree with you. Some really good people in, in positions here that yep. uh, are as real as I've seen in, in many years. I had the opportunity to interview Jason Lum. I had the opportunity to in interview Sue Knott. And I'm hoping to have Bud Mercer on because I think he sets a really good example with his police background. These are just real people yep. that are in, in positions to make a difference because they have already been in positions to make a difference their whole life. Yep. Exactly. So I'm very excited to do that. But yeah, I don't know about politics, but I certainly want to be a voice and inform people on just from what I see. I'm always up to hearing how I'm mistaken or and that's partly why like 
Um, if you're on a text message chain with me, I send articles all day long because I want people to disagree and say that news article is biased because of this or this is wrong because of that because I don't know. And then when I get informed, oh, this isn't a reliable source, it helps me understand the information better. And I never want to be a person who has the right answer. I just want to share what I've come to understand so far and receive information that might improve how we move forward because I think there are ways to do better and help communities succeed. It's just about figuring out a way to partner with the right people to make the changes happen. Well, we're going to find hopefully more nuggets like you. And the trick is always, you know, you, when you don't let the Wayne Gretzky's leave Edmonton and go to Los Angeles, yeah. you keep the errands around Chilliwack as long as you can. Yeah. And, and what I like the most, I think is that, um, there was a time when somebody like you could not wait to get away from here to, um, it was, it would have been way too small town for you, would have been way too, um, just frankly, not ready for you. And I think that our, our, our community is, is you're right. You're just at that ripe age where you're, you're just the perfect age at the perfect time yeah. to bloom and really make a difference here. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited because I'll be having, I don't know if you know, bright side eggs. Yes. I'm bringing on, I'm going to try and bring on their whole family because a family of farmers is a story. There's something to that. And there's, we all rely on the produce. We all rely on the corn. We all love the corn. And so those are, again, role models who I don't think get that. We all say like, oh, good fresh food. But do we ever get to hear from the farmer who worked his whole life and then passed that on to his child? And then they passed it on to, it's a four generation farm. And so to be able to share that, that side of things and to be able to do the whole community, because I think that everybody has a story to share and I think that that's something we overlook when we get egotistical in our own minds of like I'm gonna leave this small town is that you don't realize that people work hard every day just to make sure you're fed and when you go to the store and it's only 90 cents for an apple we just take that for granted but somebody spent a long time making sure that all the trees were taken care of chose the best apples so that you were happy with your purchase and it's in the blood yeah there comes a time now I, I'm, I'm finding with some of my farmer friends um, in the generations that you know, the kids, the generation now is like, no, I'm good. You, you know, I'm good. I, I'm, this isn't for me. Yep. There's so many opportunities out there. And so I, I think that a lot of people who maybe weren't farmers before are becoming farmers. Like the whole organic side of things is, exactly. is coming around right now. Yep. And I think you're finding entrepreneurs who are, who have turned to that way of life or, you know, who are finding that now. Like, I don't know that there, there's so much organic, goodness uh even in the brew pubs like in every way like that that really good that organic entrepreneurial spirit it is alive and well and we're seeing a lot of it here I think a Bill is a good example of that because you look at his store, you look at all the products he carries that he doesn't all make. All locally sourced. Exactly. Giving these other people an opportunity to be displayed. And for those people who put in work into the bar of soap or for the popcorn or for the the pie, that that's their everything. That's what they've been working on in the background. And so to have it displayed in a business and to hit that point is a real accomplishment. That's the big time. And you know, one thing I'll say about Bill, there's a guy who could have... Uh, literally the worst day ever and you would never know in a million years the guy's having the worst day yeah. me i can't hide it if i'm having a bad day it's it's out there you know i, I try to bury it but bill's a guy every day you'd never know 
you'd never know that something was phasing him in any way. Yep. He just always pushes the positive. Yep. And he puts in a lot of work just like yourself to try and bring awareness to local um, things. He's doing something to make a list of all the places that you can donate to. Yeah. I, I don't remember what that's called, but he's bringing that about. Well, there's, there's going to be, I mean, there's so many, there's going to be a web hub. There's a few web hubs coming up. Um, uh, I know that I, I'm also on the Chilliwack Economic Recovery Network, and uh, there is a website coming together for that, um, which will have um, employment resources, uh, one big hub of employment resources. Um, Bill is putting together, I think, and I might be wrong, but maybe with around Chilliwack, I don't know, but a resource hub. Um, I don't know. Is it already out? Maybe. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think that they were just planning on it. Well, but. that's just what he does, man. That's what he does. It's Again, you know, if you've got guys like me who are like lifelong circus carnies who just see an opportunity and want to kind of, oh, there's a piece of land. We could do something with this or we could put an event together here. We could and you use all those years of event training and you use all those years of, of stuff to do good. You take all the tools from the shed and you, you sharpen up the right ones and you make something happen. Yeah. And nowadays you just, everything you do, you do for good and you make it for a cause. That's probably the greatest part of you taking on this role is that you have all this network, but you're also a person who just seems to want to get things done. And there's no bureaucratic, oh, and then we need to make it the perfect plan. There's just this energy of like, let's just do it. Let's just get a camera. Let's start rolling yeah. and let's start. How can we get her done? And you know, we have a mayor right now who thinks along those same lines. Obviously, we have to follow the bureaucratic process to a degree, yep. but there is a lot of that. Um, and there is a lot of willingness for somebody like myself. Like I've been, like I said, I've been given pretty loose ropes. Obviously I have to stay within the parameters of, you know, whatever, but they've given me a pretty wide open scope to make a difference. And, um, they knew what they were getting. Like as a 53 year old guy coming in, I wasn't a 35 year old fresh from BIA school guy. I'm a guy who just literally probably, I promise you, I don't fit the BIA mold in any way, but, um, what was needed at this time uh, was someone to cultivate the relationships, someone to bring unity and someone to uh, who has a genuine love and a passion for the success of downtown. I have no skin in the game. I don't own a business downtown. There's no favorites. I just want everybody to succeed. And that's as honest as I could say it. And I think that the merchants feel that already yeah. in the short time I've been there if they don't know me. If they do know me, they knew it before I got the job. Well, I think that we should all be very grateful because I, I think that you bring a lot of value beyond just the circus and the energy. I think that you're an honest person who's really trying to raise up the community in the best way possible and to pull the next generation up. And I think that that is something we need to recognize. But we also need to look to you for the knowledge of what didn't work, what does work, how do we approach this better, how do we do this more effectively. And I think that you're setting a huge example for all of us to look to and to know that there are people who have made it. And I think that that is the circumstance you're in. Well, I really appreciate you, Aaron. And I, uh, this has been a, I mean, for me, it's more, it's really, I've, I feel like I've got, it's like I went to confessional or something. I feel like I've, I've gotten to, uh, this was a good forum for me to talk on. I mean, I've been offered to talk on a few of them in a, uh, the subject matter for which we're talking about, I think fits. And it was a good time. I didn't go on Facebook day one of my sobriety or even after a year. I thought about doing it after a year because I really thought if it affected one person, um, if one person saw that dude was a wild party and he quit, I can do it. You know what I mean? And I think I'm just in a good place right now. So 
the opportunity to do this with you has been a, I'm really grateful for it. And I'm grateful for you letting me share and uh, anybody listening uh, to this nine hour nugget. I hope that you can mine one little uh, gem out of it because um, it's important that we, we really do look out for each other and it's important to really uh, put the rebar on the ground, do the work on yourself. And um, I am far from completed, but I have a good start at 53. And uh, I'm just going to keep on digging, man. And I'm just going to keep on searching for the same stuff you're searching for. And keep digging out people who can help me get there. So, Well, I think that it's imp- I'm honored sincerely that you were willing to share that. When you, when you mentioned that to me, it, like, it almost brought me to tears because that is what I'm trying to deliver to people is this idea that you can do different and you can admit your faults. And that is just oh, that is all part of the process. And that's the frustration I have sometimes is that I've had a few people say like, oh, I don't want to get emotional. Oh, I don't want to do that on your pod. Like that would be embarrassing. And it's like, that's what it's, that's why I'm doing this. If you don't want to do that, I don't really want to have those people on because it is, I share a lot of things that I wouldn't share just in the save on foods, but I do it because I hope that the people listening can get something out of it. And so far I've had a lot of people reach out and say amazingly positive things that this is working for them and this helps them do better in their own lives. And they re-listen and keep trying to get that mentality instilled in their mind. And so I'm grateful that you, that you saw that, that you understood what I'm trying to do with this because that, that really makes me feel understood as the host, as someone. Well, that makes me happy. I mean, I appreciate being here. I think more than anything, people need to also take away that words are so powerful. Words are so powerful. The smallest uh, terror that you put in somebody at a young age is never forgotten. And the smallest bit of encouragement you give somebody, whether it be taking a picture with them with a guitar or teaching them a chord, and they come back to you 30 years later and go, dude, you know, a long time ago, you don't remember this, but you you took a picture with me with, with your guitar or you show me this chord and I was having trouble with this chord and you show me this and now I'm in a band and you know, they come back to you. All of it comes back to you. It's a life pension. Uh, be careful with your words. Uh, the words that you say to the negative people take it all the way to the grave. They might be able to forgive, but they take it right to the grave. I've been fortunate in my sobriety as well. And I don't want this to be a big, you know, sobriety thing, but I've been fortunate that people have been courageous enough to come up to me and say, um, you know, you said this one time and boy, it really hurt. That's five years ago. And I don't even remember saying it. I would have said it as some smart ass off the cuff, trying to be funny, maybe in front of some people who knows what damage was done, but words are very powerful. And, uh, you're doing the right thing by using this podcast to, to bring power to words, to positive words. One, but I think I'm in the same boat as you. If you looked at who I was, grades 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I'm sure there's lots of people who have a viewpoint of me, of who I was, of how I behaved, of how I said things, of how I, because I was trying to cover up a lot of problems in my life. And so to those people, I'm always willing to apologize. I was in the wrong during that period, but that willingness to own it and move forward is what I think sets the example because we can't live in the past forever and we can't pretend that we're still those people when I really think that I'm a different person than I was when I was that age. How many podcasts have you done now, including mine? Uh, 22. So you've had 22 therapy sessions for yourself. Exactly. If you really think about it, you get to, you get to purge, you get to share and you get some counseling, you get some advice, you get to release. Uh, it's 22, uh, podcasts of being of bettering yourself 
Yep. And I've had the opportunity to have people say, I didn't even realize that what I did last week had to do with what I did 10 years ago. And yep. I didn't even put the, I didn't, I've never had the opportunity to talk for three hours and put all my pieces together right. and understand my own story. And that's been something that I've been so grateful for, but it's three hours of uninterrupted conversation. There's no, Oh, hold on. Let me just check my phone. Oh, hold on. I've got to just send off this email and then keep going, keep telling me I'm listening. And so that's one of the things I think is a real tool that I hope more people take advantage of, even if it's by themselves, is to be able to just go through the process, talk and keep going. Because I know growing up, a lot of people, their parents aren't listening. They're, they're not paying attention. They don't have an ear of someone. And so this creates the environment for people to really be able to talk and share and really get out their thoughts in a clear, articulated manner where they can maybe learn something from what they said a long time ago or put pieces together. I try to walk every night after work. I try to walk, and I, I, I most times will put a podcast on when I'm walking. Jackson Brown or a podcast. Um, but, you know, for me, these are the best times to really, um, you know, there's never been a better time to explore the human condition and to really, if you if you want it, all the resources are there to make you a better person. They really are. You have to mine them and go get them. But they're, the days of the talking book, the cassette talking book, it's as simple now as on your phone with your headphones. You can learn anything. Uh, you can be a better person. You can, exp uh, I, there's just never been a better time to mine yourself and to find out um, how to make yourself better. Yeah. You know, I don't, I, this, this sounds like a Tony Robbins tape, but really, man, like the, you know, all the tours are there, all the tools for you to give yourself a fighting chance, regardless of your situation are all available yeah. now more than ever. Yeah. So you're running out of excuses. Um, not excuses, but you're running out of walls and you're gaining way more opportunity to be a better human being now. I completely agree. I go on walks every night and I listen to Jocko Willink, who's a Navy SEAL. I listen to Brett Weinstein, who's an evolutionary biologist. I listen to Jordan Peterson, who's a psychologist. I listen to all these different peoples, Joe Rogan, who are able to offer little different bits of ideas and yeah. approaches. And I've brought them all together, all these different styles of podcasts to do what I wanted to do, to do something that reflected my past. But this opportunity to be able to listen to an evolutionary biologist explain things, I just, I never thought I would have the opportunity. And making information more accessible is, I think, a real gift that podcasts have given. And they create this new space for learning from people like yourself and learning from people you would like in a crowd, if I saw you, I'd be like, oh, what would it be like to have lunch with Trevor McDonald and get to hear his thoughts on things? And <laughs> I, I, I don't think many people are... <laughs> I, think, I think you underestimate how many well, people like, I, go to your venues, see you and go, oh... I, I, like, and I don't, I don't say that uh, disrespectfully. I, I, I appreciate I appreciate the sentiment. I'm, I'm being funny. I, yeah. I, I don't... I think that, that I can think of a few more people to... Um, to, to line up for first, but I but appreciate that. But if you're an artist that. and you want to learn about how you got there, people in the audience are like, how do I get a hold of this? How do I become like this person? And but you know, I never really struggles. got there. I mean, you know, honestly, I, I wrote one CD in 2000 that went plastic. It sold five copies across Canada. And most of them were, I think, to my family. Um, you know, I never was going to be that guy. I was going to be the guy who needed some form of, because I didn't have the control as a kid, 
I needed the, and I think that's why I was so quick to grab a house and never let it go. Um, I needed stability. So I was never going to go on the road as a rock star and go across Canada in an old van and have those stories. But I would always have the, um, the, 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 the financial stability of, of home. And I think that's what Chilliwack gave me is that, that what I didn't have maybe as a younger kid, Chilliwack has given me that rebar that, you know, and I've traveled a ton since then. I've had a great life, but you need that rebar. You need, everybody needs a, a, a grounding rod. You need roots. Yeah. Um, whether you have to go away and then come back and find them, you, you, you do need roots. But I think you did make it because, yeah, you might not have sold the copies, but you have the respect of your city. And when I think of like a lot of this podcast is based on Big Sean because he's one of my role models, um, somebody who started, his family started from nothing, his mom started from nothing, and they worked them, themselves out. And he made a song called Bigger Than Me. And that song is about how he... I wondered how you named the podcast. Yeah, that song is about how he made all the money he wanted to make and still felt completely empty inside and realized that what he's doing here is bigger than him. It's about giving motivation. And so if you look at a lot of his songs, they're like, go make it, go make the money, go be successful, go support your community. And he represents Detroit every chance he gets. He represents his community and where he started from. And he he has a song called, I'm going to die in the city. Like, I'm going to... This is my home. This is what it's about. And this is for me. And to me, you're doing the same thing. It's the same message he has. It's just a different community. It's Chilliwack. It's not Detroit. It's here. And it's that same, I'm going to be here till the end. And I'm going to be representing my community to the best of my ability till the very end. I would just get bigger with it. I, you know, I always, I, I know, I can tell you for an honest fact that if I ever won the $80 million or the whatever million dollars, or if I ever was in a position to be a, 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 a world-renowned act of some type, I would always be this same person. I would just do it on a bigger scale. Yeah. Like it would be a bigger Chilliwack. There'd be yeah. a bigger sense. There'd be bigger charities to work with. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's kind of instilled in the roots, right? That's that whole thing of, um, but, but I've also been blessed with the payback of doing those good things. Like instant, like I'm a guy, like I would sooner paint a room because I can see instant results. Like with these charities, when we do work locally, you see instant results, instant. And that to me is, is it's tangible win there, right? So I've been fortunate to be around that. So then you just keep you. It's addicting, right? Goes back to your addictive personality. You want to keep giving because it feels good. This is this is call and response, you know. Yeah. And and once people start getting into the habit that oh, there's Trevor McDonald, he probably wants money. <laughs> then it's then it's not a bad place to be, especially when they know that it's probably going to go to a really good uh, a good place, right? Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Well, we just did three hours. That's amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm really grateful to have been able to record this. I was very nervous. I wouldn't be able to get you on. So I'm very Well, I'm honored to be here. I honestly got, I, I, I saw who you already had and I was, I was quite flattered that uh, I could be a part of, of the list of people. So I, again, I think what you do is really, really important and really positive. And I would push again. And I hope that people hearing this maybe would write into you and, and really get you to be in the interview chair and, um, and share that, especially now more than ever, share your experiences and and um, where you're going in a positive light. I think it's important. I think everybody needs to hear that right now more than ever. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Cheers, buddy. Thanks, man. <laughs>